we bought a mic. We bought a mic. We bought a mic. We bought a mic. And we've had a keyboard this whole fucking time. But none of us are natural piano players. And we're already bad enough at guitar. You're welcome. We bought a mic. Shimona. We got done. a long intro for you today, guys. Mm. Oof. This is actually the full episode. Okay. Okay. James okay. Murphy's getting a little bit carried away with himself over there. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it stopped. Naturally. Hello, man. Man, that was that was that was good, guys. We, we want to thank Teddy Perkins for that performance. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for stopping in, Teddy. Oh, you're welcome. Welcome, you're welcome everybody. To we bought a mic. Um, it's a late one again this week. Having a late one. We're with getting the boys. fucked up on coffee tonight, guys. I yeah. am Ernest Calderon. I am Hunter Mobley, and I'm post work Drew Dietzen. The only difference is my feet hurt. Oh, you you need a little rub there. What if yeah, we, we guys just? What if we each oh, put a foot out you. in like everybody's faces? Yeah, we're, all and we're just, each rubbing somebody's. We're all butt. massaging each other's tootsies. <laughs> that, that's the kind of podcast we are. We're friends, and you can tell because you can hear the feet. <laughs> you, for me, you really got to dig in there. Like mm. you got to put your whole oh, yeah. force into. Oh, it. I have corns. <laughs> I yeah. People think that I'm just wearing shoes all the time. No, I'm not. Those those are just the bottom of my feet. Yeah, exactly. I I have. They think I have Vibram five fingers on. No, nope. no, 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 no. Nope. no. Okay, well, today we're talking Isle of Dogs and some other things that we've been watching. But first, let's just dive right into it, guys. It's the beginning of the Summer Movie Wager. Yeah. 2018 edition. So we did this last year uh, with a bunch of friends. It's very fun. Um, And anyone listening can join in pretty easily to do this as well. Um, Essentially how it works is... You're predicting how well every movie that comes out this summer will do in the domestic box office. Um, so you're choosing, A, your top 10 in the order that you actually think it's going to be in, and then three dark horse picks uh, that you think could sneak into the top 10 out of every single movie that comes out this summer. Yeah, and the the scoring is the first and 10 um, spots are 13 points, and then all the others are 10 points. And then depending on how off you are, you get deducted like two points. Yeah, I believe, it goes like I, seven, five, three. Yeah, if you're like within one space of your prediction, you get seven points, two spaces, five points, three spaces, three points. Yeah. And then if you have it like anywhere in your top 10, you get a point. 
Yeah. Um, so I think that's right. Yeah. Something yeah, yeah. like that. Yeah. So we'll have a link in the uh, description if you want to join. Will they be able to like easily join our specific yeah. game? Yeah. So you can join. You can look at our our uh, personal scores. I know. You know. You're gonna be starstruck, but it's we're just people like you. You know. Yeah. yeah it, this was actually built by a fan of the Slash Film Cast because they're mm-hmm. the ones who kind of don't uh, don't look that up. This. We're the only film podcast. <laughs> But they, uh, those guys over there have been doing it for years, but they yeah. only uh, kind of let other people in last year because of this guy who built the site. Yeah. And uh, kudos to him for doing it. The UI of the site is trash, like garbage, but... Hey, we just gave this guy a shout out. Yeah. They're going to trash his web design skills. It's called, yeah, it's called negging. I'm trying to get him in bed. It's, <laughs> look, it, I mean, it's a hard website to use, but it's a really, it's a fun premise. You know, it's, it's just like anything. It's like sports betting, yeah, but you're doing so, movies. So we're going to have some, some other people joining us for, uh, for the fun. Book. Yeah. And if you guys uh, do uh, choose to add us on, um, on the summer movie wager, just let us know what your names are, so then we can add you to see how we all compare. Yeah, um, yeah. Um, well, the link, the link in the description is going to have all of our scores. So even oh, if you don't want to join in, you can still follow along yeah. to see how we. Yeah. Okay. Um, um, last year, uh, last year. So we, we. This isn't just for all like fun and games. This is actually there are real stakes at there play here. There are consequences. So. The way that we did it last year, which I'm assuming we're probably going to do the same thing again this year, is whoever out of our group got the most points, whoever won the summer movie wager, got to choose a movie for the rest of us that we all have to watch yeah, much, before the first movie Much starts. like with our Oscar ballots where I win and we watched Merry Christmas and we all had a ball and it was a great time. Yeah, check and, out that bonus commentary track if you haven't already. Yeah, um, so yeah, uh, last year Colin won the summer movie wager and he selected Bright. And... Yeah, Colin won, which none of us have watched Bright yet, but we still have we're until gonna, we have until we have Avengers a solid come two out. Weeks. Yeah, we're um, gonna watch it and we're gonna do commentary. I just want to say you guys should be very upset because I lost by a point last year. What were you and gonna? You make guys us missed watch? out on watching the classic film Only God Forgives. Damn, which is truly just a piece oh, of shit. You know what I'm gonna do if I win is like God's Not Dead. Oh God, <laughs> God's Not Dead three. Yeah, produced by Sean Hannity, movie mogul Sean Hannity. <laughs> well, last year the only reason why colin was able to win is because he was the only one who didn't pick guardians of the galaxy volume two for number one yeah and when wonder woman became number one we all automatically got knocked down there at the end of the summer yeah it's it is it's like a roller coaster during the summer because you know obviously movies come out like late into the year so like everything is shuffling around until like the last week possible so it was really fun to keep track of last year yeah you know it's something like fantasy football except you never update it so this year colin is is back with the title he's got the belt but the three of us are gonna we're out for blood and um uh, honestly dav is joining as well as uh allison uh drew's girlfriend and mm-hmm. gaia yep um she hasn't made hers yet she hasn't though, made right? her list yet but yeah she still has some time yeah uh, and, I th- you- and i think um grant is gonna get in on it okay too. cool yeah so, so we so got you- a little bit of a group but uh yeah so you can click the link and you'll see all our shit and then uh dm one of us or just you know contact us anyway and we can just add you to the you know the actual big list and then everyone will be do you guys want to just like communists you guys or- just want to like go through like dark horses and then kind of well, run through the top 10 quickly you know or- looking at all of our lists our one through fives are all pretty similar with only a few variations. Um, and then our six through ten is when things start to get interesting. And then our um, dark horses are like yeah. all over the place. So yeah. our, our one through five for all of us, I'm assuming, is 
Uh, we all have Avengers at number one. Everyone right? has Avengers number yeah, one. Yeah, that seems like almost like it's the ultimate guaranteed lock. Like, it's, yeah, it's do we close think to a lock. That there's gonna be a Wonder Woman type upset. Honestly, I don't think it's a lock. Lock. Like I feel like maybe Solo will do better. Maybe not. Um, I I think that if anything is going to pass it, I have a feeling it's gonna be Jurassic World, just because the first Jurassic World made so much money. The first Jurassic World made more money than Age of Ultron that year. Right. Yeah. But this is just like Infinity War is the culmination of every all 20,000 Marvel movies that we've watched so far, so it just kind of seems like there's no way that this movie won't make a billion dollars. the hype for this one is definitely a lot bigger than the hype for Ultron was. Like, with all the, you know, materials getting released, like, people are paying attention to, like, stupid press releases for this movie. Mm -hmm. And um, the tracking for opening weekend Mm -hmm. is, like, low, low, 230. 230 million. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's going to be a, a banger of a movie. I'm assuming we know Kevin Feige is not incompetent, so it's not going to be bad. It's going to be good. Even if it's not great, yeah. it's going to be good enough that everyone's going to see so it. So did, did anyone look up the Rogue One numbers from December? Because I I'm, did I'm, look I'm looking... them I did look them up. Um I can't remember off the top of my head. I knew that movie made like over that, 300 million dollars, I want to say. That might be similar to what Solo's looking at. Yeah, that's that's what I was thinking. Um, but also, people I think are more hyped about having Han Solo than they were about having a bunch of random characters that they didn't know. Like, uh, I think the Han part is going to bring in a lot, and most people who are going to see this movie are not paying attention to all the shit that we're talking about every week about how like the turmoil in the production of this movie. Yeah, Pe- that's that is that is very true. My one of my concerns with Solo is that it come it kind of comes out during a slog of movies at the end of May, beginning of June. Like we have Deadpool coming out on May 18th, and then Solo comes out on May 25th. People are still going to be going to go see Deadpool and stuff and, like and that, and still seeing Avengers, from still the seeing month before, Avengers yeah. again. And it's not quite like that's why I have Jurassic World at number two, because it comes in at the end of June where there isn't really a whole lot of other stuff that comes out near that. Two weeks later, we have Ant-Man the Wasp, which I have much lower at my list. And you even have Incredibles 2 ahead of Solo. I do. I really think Incredibles 2 is going to do some gangbusters. Like I see I have. I have Deadpool 2 at number 3, which I'm kind of starting to regret a little bit. I'm not sure it's going to yeah, be that huge. I have that at number 4. It is going to be... I mean, there is a big uh, knock on it, which is that it's rated R, so that knocks out a lot, yeah. of, a lot of kids that can't see it. However... Uh, the first one was massive. Every, well, and it spread like wildfire, like via word of mouth, and I feel like this one, now it has an established audience. It doesn't need to like... It doesn't need to have kind of like a pretty good opening weekend and then blow up afterward. It, I think it can kind of blow up from the gates. It just depends on if people are really still hype about that. I don't know. My whole thing with Incredibles 2 is I just... I know that Incredibles isn't as big that the first Incredibles movie isn't as big as Finding Nemo or even close to that, but I could see a little bit of Finding Dory-ness kind of happening with this, where it's a very late, overdue kind of sequel to this Pixar movie. Overdue, I put in quotations, because, mm-hmm. I mean, what's, did we really ask for a sequel for Finding Nemo? But no, Pixar's no. going to give it to us regardless of whether we want it or Incredibles not. Incredibles is a little different because... Not only did the first one lead directly into a sequel with how it ends, mm-hmm. but since that movie, which I think is 04, um, there's been a whole barrage of superhero craze in Hollywood. That yeah, was- and Incredibles is going... I mean, yeah. Incredibles is... 
that's one of the things I really want to do a rewatch of Incredibles because I growing up, um, we talked about this a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, where we were talking you about come Pixar from movies a broken home and you don't I'm, like it because of that? Yeah, I just I don't appreciate <laughs> whenever I see families, they're just too happy together. Yeah. No, but I mean, I do think that people are kind of craving a little bit of like an anti-hero type story. That's one of the reasons why people like Deadpool so much because it's like, oh, it's the self-aware hero. But these are like the heroes like at totally the end of their run and it's kind of just poking fun at the whole superhero genre. And the first one did that before the whole superhero genre blew up to anything close yeah. to what it is today. Yeah, um, heroes were like, I mean, we had like Spider-Man the year before. That. X-Men. X-Men Yeah, exactly. Movies. But like it wasn't what it is now. I think, I mean, I think that's going to do really well. I just, I definitely don't think it won't have uh, as much pull as Finding Dory did. Because Finding Dory, like Finding Nemo is... A, I think it's a good movie, and B, it's good if you're three years old. Also, you know, I don't, I don't know if The Incredibles tracks quite as well for like super young people. Where like yeah. every every toddler isn't going to be like, oh, hey, I want to see hey those. Man, there's th- the demon baby. Yeah, I the, yeah. whatever. It's just like like he's to- not a demon. Toddlers see like a, a very colorful animated fish and they get excited. You know what I mean? Yeah. I don't think that they see like a, a buff uh, dad superhero and they're like, oh, oh mom. Yeah, I I have Deadpool two at five. I just I kind of feel like Deadpool two and Solo are going to eat into each other's numbers a little bit. I'm They're sure too both close. Of them, both of them are going to do really oh, well. Hey, but... okay, I have a confession right now, uh, pertaining to number six on my list. I've never seen a single Mission Impossible movie. <laughs> yeah, so number six, we I also... all have Mission Impossible six at number six. I was looking at, at their box offices and I was like, "Holy sh!" Like people turn out for these yeah. okay. all the time. I'm gonna, I'm gonna say it now on the pod. Hunter, lo- er, we're, yeah, we're er- gonna have a, a rewatch. Ernie loves this shit to, the, to these movies. Ernie's really into oh, Mission yeah. Impossible, especially Mission Impossible. Yeah, too. I got, I got the blue box set. Of all of them. Oh, oh yeah. And these movies, for some reason, I don't know what the fuck they're doing, but they get better every single movie. They, mm. Okay, they get... not from one to two, but yeah, from yeah, okay. three on, yes. Well, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I honestly, I don't think that the difference in quality between one and two is even that stark. Like, the first Mission Possible, it's a, it's a fun movie, but it's not like... It's not like it's amazing compared to the second one, you know. They're both like on the pretty even level quality wise. Yeah. Um and then you get 3 with JJ coming in like turning it into this crazy, you know, energetic action film. And it's kind of like the uh, Fast and Furious franchise. It it yeah. revitalized itself. It, yeah. yeah. It yes, but Fast and Furious takes a different angle to how they're doing it fast and furious is more of like a it's almost like a like a video game like a comic yeah. book sort and, of and thing. also i mean tom cruise is no paul Walker. do you guys no and do you guys i think i think this might have been the first time that jj abrams was ever compared to the rock in history so yeah it's also <laughs> pretty bad. much they both came in yeah they um, were franchise viagra but i i just think that this movie like bringing in simon pegg and like switching up the directors and also giving it to Chris, Christopher McQuarrie, who made Edge of Tomorrow, one of the better. Yeah, um, that's a great, great films. Tom Cruise movie, too. Yeah, like they he just works really well with Tom Cruise and Tom Cruise, like he's he's at that golden spot in his age where he's like willing to try crazy shit but not old enough for it to be sad yeah. yet his mm-hmm. his thetan rating is off the charts if you're a scientology yeah. buff 
<laughs> like he is he is transcended he is like every all half of his money is going straight to l ron hubbard's dead pockets <laughs> eventually we're gonna get to the point where these movies it's just gonna be sad to see like an old man like jump from helicopter it's to helicopter. all right let's be honest it's kind of already reached that point where you're just watching it and you're like can you just do like a biopic or something tom cruise like but jesus christ cruise. he still looks good He's still like I just because okay. he was never a hunk, and he still looks about the same as he did. At Dude. least in Mission Impossible movies, it acknowledges his age. Whereas in like he's making something like American Made last right. year, he's playing like a twenty-eight-year-old guy, and you're like, "Come the fuck on, <laughs> okay. like, dude." So the thing with, with Tom Cruise though is like you can you can riff and like hate on him all you want, but you can't deny that he gives his hundred percent. Oh. Every time. Oh yeah. No, I mean, I still I love Tom Cruise. Don't get me wrong. I just He's wish a crazy that he would, person. I wish that he would make some more choices, like even something like Tropic Thunder, where he just goes out there and just does some weird ass shit, yeah. like with his character. I want to see more of that. Tom well, the Cruise. thing is, I'm I'm 100 sure he was like approached for that or whatever. I just feel like he's just too fucking weird to like exit his realm because i mean when when america saw the real tom cruise they were terrified and he didn't do a movie for a couple years on the on the oprah yeah show. on oprah and like that that video that leaked of him like worshiping l ron hubbard yeah. at that big weird banquet oh, like that's the real tom cruise katie yeah. holmes knows the real tom cruise and she like she sprinted out of that yeah, house she got out yeah exactly so i i mean if he was smart he would do that but i don't think he's smart i think he's good but not smart so the the bottom half of our lists are kind of all over the place yeah. i have oceans eight and ant-man and the wasp as seven and eight can we talk about like the hype for ant-man is like it's negative. non-existent it's fucking that's negative, dude. i honestly i put i put ant-man and the wasp at a uh, number nine on wow. my list okay and i just i think that this is going to be like the least successful marvel movie since like the first thor maybe like, i really well, think this is not going to be because you have to think about this is the third marvel movie in the year that's had black panther which is the best Marvel movie of all time. And now Infinity War, which could even surpass Black Panther as the most successful Marvel movie of all time. So, yeah. like, people are kind of be like, do you think that, like, gangbusters are going to turn out for the third Marvel movie I mean, in the, the year? the first Ant-Man made 180 million. Yeah, that's why I have that's it enough. I to, have it at number seven. Yeah, exactly. It's going to make the list. And it also comes out in a time that there aren't that many movies. It's like a early so, movie. It's dude. early July. The thing is, it's kind of like, like every time I think about it, I just think of like a it's like Deadpool light kind of where the star of it is like a you know he's pat his past is like riddled with comedies and also romantic stuff because he's like attractive and it's but it just is not like it doesn't pack any punch like Deadpool does of like being raunchy or whatever. There's just kind of nothing special about Ant Man. Yeah, like no, uh, you're right. I mean, he's better than Doctor Strange, but like it's yeah, who, but it's around that. Who level. Who watched the first Ant Man movie was like, oh man, I can't wait for the Ant Man two. Yeah, like, well, no, <laughs> nobody really said that. I was that's I, yeah, I that's love my new Paul Rudd. I fucking oh love yeah, Paul exactly. Rudd. I love him, and he's very charismatic in the role. But still, like I just don't really care. This is At least, this is my new character. You ready? It's it's guy watching Ant Man one. Where's the wasp? <laughs> and scene okay okay so the, the, I, the I, oceans I, the oceans films the the first one opened pretty big with 180 and then each one after went considerably down to 125 and 117 so do we think that oceans 8 is going to go up to that 180 mark for the first okay so i, I oceans 11 i really struggled with where to put oceans 8 on my list i ended up putting it number 10 and the reason why it's so low on my list is because I kind of have a fear that this movie could bomb. Like, and I put bomb as in like it's going to make like $80 million. But 
I also could see it having a little bit of a Ghostbusters effect. I mean, Ghostbusters made, what, like $160 million? So, like, it was really hard to figure out where to place this. I just put it a little bit lower because, although the cast is excellent for this, I just feel like the Oceans franchise doesn't have half of the same, like, allure to it as a Ghostbusters Yeah, well, the new Ghost, Ghostbusters made 128 one twenty-eight. So it's not even like well, that super. High. The thing is, if you if you look at uh, the oceans movies, the sequels before this one, they had diminishing returns already. Yeah, and now they're just completely rebooting it. Part of me, like I honestly wish that it was Julia Roberts since she's in uh, Oceans One. Like I wish they had kind of intertwined it with the actual plot. That would have made that would way more really sense. Cool. But I feel like she's just kind of off the map at this point. I don't yeah. really know what she's doing these days. And Sandy Bullock is, you know, always uh, fiend in for for roles. And I, yeah, and you got you got Mindy Kaling in there. It has Rihanna. A, yeah, it has a great cast. Uh, honestly, I don't think Mindy Kaling is a great actor. I think she's a much better writer. She's a better writer. Yeah, that, I definitely um, agree with that. But I mean. I don't know. Watching the trailer, it just looked incredibly bland. It looked like the female Ghostbusters trailer where it was like, all right, ladies, you get to do what the boys did. And I just kind of hate that that's like the whole thing of just like, this is what kind of the like white Hollywood elites ideal of just like, all right, now we're going to give one for the girls. It's like, but it is what the guys already got. Like it's it's literally the exact same thing. And it makes sense. It makes sense because we do live in an age where original ideas are very few and far in between like there are honestly like for every single variety of franchise there are no there's not a lot of originality going around so it makes sense that all female reboots are happening because we live in the age of reboots in general you know what i mean Mm -hmm. so it makes sense financially and logistically but it just strikes me as like kind of a hollow gesture and i don't know how people are going to react to this movie so i mean uh my seven and eight are either re or either sequels or just kind of new takes and ideas at number seven i have disney's christopher robin yeah that's a dark horse for me i have that at number eight i think that that's definitely gonna be in the top 10 almost entirely just because this movie comes out august 3rd um we should say the summer movie wager the last week of it is uh labor day weekend so the first first weekend of of, of uh, of september and so the really, only the Christopher only, Robin yeah. is the only thing that comes out that month, except for the Meg. <laughs> okay, um, <laughs> no, but I just think Christopher Robin, like the trailer, looks I think really good. Like it looks just like a good family movie. I seems like classic Disney. I was kind of looking at Jungle Book numbers and stuff like that, or even um, just kind of some of the newer like live action Disney adaptation mm-hmm. numbers and they all do really successful. You know what I looked up as a reference point for this is uh Saving Mr. Banks. <laughs> I don't know if that's the best point of comparison. To well, be just honest. I think this is going to do better than that though because it's not like about the creator. It's not about AA a. Milne or whatever yeah, it takes there, place in the world. Yeah, cuz yeah. there are a lot of of movies that have popped up like in the past probably decade or two that are about like the creator of famous things. The one with Johnny Depp, uh I forget what it was oh, about. Oh, that one was a while back, the the Neverland. Yeah, 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 it was yeah. about Finding the, Neverland. Yeah, the creator of Peter Pan or whatever, but this one is actually just about straight up like future. It's about Pooh Bear. It's, like, a, it's yeah, just... that's that's a definitely a better premise in my opinion and I think people are going to see this. I don't, all it has to be is good, and I think it's going to draw a uh, surprising crowd. Yeah. I feel like and it'll it's do, Disney. So. It's Disney, so you can't underestimate yeah, the Disney I name. I think it'll do well. And then, then at number number eight, I have Mamma Mia 2. I have that at number nine. I Me think too. That, I think Mamma <laughs> Mia 2 is like, like, I think that's no joke of a movie. Like, I do think Mamma Mia 2 is, it's going to get like a significant... Po- 
percentage of the population that's just kind of sick of these superhero movies and big action movies that they yeah. have to go to. And it's just it's gonna get like a yeah. big a big family also, crowd to it. Who doesn't love Abba? Oh, um can they, I raise have... my hand against that because I don't like Abba? <laughs> or gonna, the first Mamma Mia. You know, actually to that they're gonna have to like get into deep cuts for for Mamma Mia. No, too. no, it's they're gonna use this it's the same thing. Oh, it's, really? Yeah, it's going to be the same thing. I, really? Is that real? Like, come on. They, how, what else would it be? I, well, they I mean, can't in use the, the trailer, same songs. In the they trailer, just... they used Mamma Mia, Here I Go Again. I mean, that's I literally the name of it is well, Mamma Mia, it. Here I Go Again. But they can't use Dancing Queen again. Like, they, they can't just do the same songs. Dude, watch them watch do it again. Honestly, There's they, no way in hell. Might. I, I'm wondering what they're going to do. But as a whole... Uh, I was saying earlier, I chose this movie on my list uh, because I I think everyone is dumb and I think everyone's stupid and I don't like anyone. Yeah, I think that the first Mamma Mia is genuinely a bad movie. I know a lot of people would disagree with me. I never saw it. Me neither. I've seen both the play on Broadway and the movie. And guess what? I think both of them are not good. If you, I know that I'm not in a big majority for that. Like a lot of people love Mamma Mia. That's like their favorite musical. But I just really, I don't like the band ABBA. And I just think that the story of Mamma Mia is stupid and dumb and boring and basic. But and if you like Mamma Mia, then you're stupid and dumb and boring. You and just basic. made a lot of enemies, bro. <laughs> yeah. You made a lot of fucking Connor, enemies. I want there. you to close your eyes and picture okay. Piers Brosnan singing and dancing. Yeah. Oh, and I'm in. I'm. I'll, I'm back in. Go. I'm if, back yeah. in. If okay. you thought Piers Brosnan was too old in the last one, <laughs> now he's 80, <laughs> and he's okay. still trying to sing. So the the number 10 spot is pretty important because it's it's weighted. I think that's kind of cool. How like you have to think about what you put number 10 just as much as what you put number mm-hmm. one. It's the same point value. So what do you guys have? I put skyscraper, <laughs> the new Dwayne the Rock Johnson. Movie. I actually okay. So skyscraper is one of my dark horses. Um, at number 10, I put Ocean's Eight. Which might be a little bit too low for it, but I was just kind of all See, over the place. I think so. Last year, I did the same thing by putting Baywatch at ten, and it was a horrible mistake. Yeah, because that movie bombed. So I'm trying it again this year, maybe because <laughs> it's it. the it's the same director as Rampage, which is making good money right now, mm-hmm. and it's being known as the greatest piece of well, art to ever exist. It's Die Hard with one leg. So this, 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 see, this movie was easy to find reference points to look up the box office of because it's just a, a Dwayne Johnson, you know... <laughs> T-shirt movie. Yeah, it's just, oh, it's just a Dwayne Green Johnson screen. like disaster movie, basically. Yeah, just like up San Andreas and shit like that. It's Rampage. Die Hard, but with more muscles. And less leg. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I have that as one of my dark horses. At number ten, I have Hotel Transylvania three. Yeah. I really regret not putting that. Yeah. In my list. Yeah. Zoom. It uh, was. I don't even have it as a dark yeah, horse. Yeah. Through through research, and I think you said something too, but it was brought to our attention that the all of these movies, the Hotel Transylvania movies, do very yeah, well. Yeah. The first two Hotel Transylvania movies both made one hundred and fifty million dollars. So yeah, I threw it on my so list. So if that happens, if it makes one hundred and fifty million again, it's going to be in the they, top ten. They showed the trailer for it when I saw Isle of Dogs, and it looked like hot garbage but it's like have you ever what seen else, what else are you going to take your kids to during the summer you know it's like the literally the perfect yeah. have movie. you ever seen any of the other hotel transylvania movies no i haven't but i've actually heard a really good thing so i'm kind of curious to watch them because i've oh, heard yeah? that they're like genuinely good kids movies, i mean i believe so. it they could be good i mean adam sandler is dracula like come um, on yeah so yeah, my my dark horses though. Uh, we just talked about skyscraper. Ocean's Eight is one of mine, and then the Meg. This movie is interesting. It comes out August tenth. There's really nothing going on except for Christopher Robin. Different audiences there. 
it's essentially like it's going to be a big budget wide release version of like Sharknado from from the looks of the trailer yeah. where like and that's why i think it can do well because the sharknado movies and like you know fucking eel apocalypse or like alligator armageddon or whatever mm-hmm. all those movies they do crazy well just airing on sci-fi network like people watch the shit out of them kind of ironically kind of not um and i think that all this movie has to be is okay and people are gonna go I think if it is because it looks so bad that it's a meme, so then it's going to be like maybe a five or a six out of ten, and everyone's going to be like, "Wait a minute, that was actually like pretty chill." And then I think the floodgates might be unleashed for this movie. I don't know. I, I think this movie may do better overseas than it does. I mean, I mean it definitely will. Movies because, like this yeah. always do. Yeah, really spectacle well movies overseas. are. They, they I don't transfer. know if we mentioned this, but the summer movie wager is domestic. Yeah, only. I said. Yeah, it's all it's all yeah. American box office. So the big spectacle movies are moved mm. down a bump because of that. Because mm. those those you know you can you uh Dwayne Johnson jumping. <laughs> off a helicopter onto a skyscraper is the same in any language. Dude, he's gonna punch I, that skyscraper. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I do. I do. I was really considering putting the the Meg on my list just for what you were saying. That the only movies that really come out in August it's Christopher Robin, The Meg, and then Slenderman, which comes out. But it comes out on August twenty fourth. Basically, meaning it has a week to make its money. <laughs> no way. So it's not going yeah. to happen. So I um. I made my list before the Meg trailer hit, so I didn't even know about it. So my other two um, Dark Horses are Hereditary, which is an A24 horror movie, mm-hmm. and Sorry to Bother You, which is just like this indie darling that came out of South. Yeah, which, Southwest. as much as I would love for both of those movies to make a lot of money, because both of them look amazing, I don't think that yeah. they're going to make... I don't think they're going to make I mean, that's, $40 million. That's, that's, so. kind, of, yeah. that's I, kind of the Dark Horse yeah. pick for me. You, know, see, you never it, know. With Hereditary, it all depends on if it's... Uh, traditionally scary enough because by all accounts it's good but that's not enough for box office I've just heard too many things of people saying that's just truly like unsettling and unnerving that general audiences aren't gonna like that I'm probably gonna fucking love it yeah. but I uh, yeah um, um, and also um so usually like every year there's at least like one big comedy that sneaks into the top 10 somewhere like girls trip last did. year we had girls trip um so this year I kind of threw shit against the wall and i put tag as one of my dark horses Ugh. did we talk about this trailer Wait, a little bit last week yeah it's <laughs> tag it's colon brutal. based on a true story yeah exactly tag colon you're it I mean, colon based <laughs> you're on not true story. you're not too far off i i do it. think could, that there is going to be a comedy even if it's not tag i think that there is going to be a comedy that sneaks in there towards the end that just people are kind of sick of big action movies yeah. and they just want to go see like a fun stupid comedy with their friends i, I mean I'm looking at my top 10 and I don't have the closest thing I have to that is Ant-Man and the Wasp, which is a superhero movie. So it doesn't really qualify. So I overall, I think my list is solid, but there may be some things that could be uh, of a of of a fatality to me like putting deadpool too high not including a a good kids movie, not including a, a solid like studio comedy. Um, those things could prove to be bad, but you never know with these things. Like, I do think it's kind of strange this year that, I mean, of course, we all have like a consensus number one between the three of us that Infinity War is going to win, but even just down the list, even if the actual numbering of our movies is different, we all kind of have the same movies, which mm. is almost kind of scary to me whenever that happens, that there could be like two or three movies that just come out of fucking nowhere and just fuck up everybody's oh, list. You know what none of us put that maybe we should have is Truth or Dare. No, it doesn't qualify. It doesn't qualify. It comes oh. out this week. Yeah, or it just came out this weekend. Yeah, 
the, yeah. the it starts with Avengers. Watch out for Believe our review truth, of that. Truth or Dare is going to make five hundred billion dollars. I'm gonna yeah, I'm gonna kill okay. myself. Okay. Well, let's uh, let's move on, guys. Yeah, let's, let's get to what we've been watching. Uh, so I'm not caught up in Atlanta. So tread lightly, whoever the fuck wants to talk about um, it. Yeah. So this episode is actually not too spoiler heavy compared to what we saw with Teddy Perkins last week. Yeah, that was yeah. Um, that was fucking incredible. It's called Champagne Poppy. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a van episode, which I loved. Uh, get a little, I, I love how this season we're getting like little one-off episodes, um, here and there, but, uh, it's, it's a pretty simple story of Van and her friends going to a party at what appears to be Drake's mansion in Atlanta. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, Drake just, he's that, he's that successful. <laughs> he was, he's having a new year's Eve party in Atlanta. Yeah. Um, I'm going to be honest with you, this is, I think, definitely my f- least favorite episode of the season, which is really disappointing to me, because whenever it started out and you get the little opening and realized it was going to be a Van episode, I got really excited, because the Van episode in season one is one of my favorite episodes of that season, so I was really had high expectations for it. And there are some really good themes of this. I mean, Van is kind of, she goes on her Instagram or on Snapchat and sees Earn in a story with some other girl. So she's kind of playing this like mental game where she has to prove that she has to prove that she won the breakup and everything like something that couples do. And I did like some of that aspects. Maybe it's just because um, there were like. I don't know, like 15 too many Drake jokes for my tastes as a person who doesn't okay. really like Drake. <laughs> I think I think that may be exactly it. I think if you're a Drake fan, especially you're gonna fucking if, love if, this you're a, if you're a woman, because I know like um, a Drake's uh, most of Drake's fan base tends to be women. Um, you're going to love it. Exactly. Like he really appeals to like the the female demographic really well. I I don't have anything against Drake. I just I'm not a fan. Like I've tried to get into his music, and I mean, he I, has a couple good songs. I here do and there. like some Drake stuff. I I am a fan of uh, if you're if you're reading this, it's too late. I really that enjoy was, the I mean, album. That was, that's his only album for guys. Yeah, I mean, I love the album "Take Care" too. I yeah, really no, think "Take Care" is a really really I, solid I like some, album. Nice for what his newest single is. Genuinely, it's great. Like it's so much better than God's Plan, which is yeah. probably going to get a lot more plays, but. Um, I will say without spoiling, because uh, Drew hasn't seen it, there is a scene that happens by the pool of the house that is probably the best scene in the episode. Um, yeah, definitely. I don't want to say too much of what happens because it's a it's a nice small little little moment that uh, that I don't want to ruin. But it was just good to have it there. It's like classic Atlanta, you know, when when Atlanta gets a little existential, a little uh, introspective. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just a really good moment. All right. Um, yeah, there's a little bit of a delving with the the uh, Bostrom simulation yeah. argument, which yeah. was really cool. Um, and yeah, just a ton of Drake jokes, which I kind of could take or leave. Um, but yeah, overall, I thought the episode was fine. You know, it's still Atlanta. It's still good to see these characters and it's still really strong writing. Um, even though we're not seeing like crazy just, in your face shit. Maybe, and also, I mean, I, I I do think that I, for one, maybe I had my expectations a little bit high just because, like I said, I do love the first Van episode that we get last season. And after seeing uh, just the 40-minute long episode that yeah. we got last week that was just such a treat and unlike anything we had ever seen before, maybe like I had my expectations a little bit too high. So this was kind of an episode of Atlanta to kind of bring you back to the equilibrium for what the show yeah, is. But 
it's still Atlanta. It's still, it's, I mean, it's still good. It's still really good. It's still better than pretty mm-hmm. much everything else on TV, even wherever it's not yeah. hitting right. a thousand percent. If those Drake jokes are good, I'm gonna. There are I'm some gonna, good ones. I'm in gonna there. come back next there, week and shit there on There are guys. some <laughs> really good ones. I'm not gonna lie. I did have a good chuckle at a couple of mm-hmm. I, it, girls screaming out just lines of Drakes that are just yeah. fucking yeah. perfect. All right, all right, all right. Well, don't spoil anything else with that. Um, so next up. I took the liberty. We haven't talked about this show. It's been out for a couple months now, and we haven't discussed it yet. So I took the liberty of watching uh, five episodes of AP Bio, which is the new Glenn Howerton vehicle on... um, Is it on... It's it's, on NBC. Yeah, it's on NBC. Um, So it is a network... Did you watch it on Hulu? Yes, it's on Hulu. So it is a network sitcom, um, which should temper any expectations. Overall, this show is incredibly solid. It's... It's still- Patton Oswalt's in there, right? Yeah, he's he's fine. Honestly, he's like one of the weaker cast members, but that is not speaking to his weaknesses. It's speaking to the cast's uh, collective strength. So the show is it's taking from the blueprint of uh, what um, Fox did with the Mick, where they were like, okay, we have these Always Sunny characters who are just despicable. Like we know that every cast member on Always Sunny is great at playing someone who is horrible. Who do we put them against like in their shows? Who is bouncing off of them? Children. They choose children. And that's a great choice because it's like the natural opposite of the incredible shittiness of of who they are. And obviously, if you're banking on these people as being able to carry their own show, you're you're not going to give them like a whole new character to play. You're going to give them a character based on like the unadulterated shittiness of who they are and always sunny. Um, so this show does that. It Glenn Howerton is a former like philosophy professor who he had a, a, a meltdown before he got tenure at Harvard. And so he has come uh, to live in this small town in like Indiana or some shit like that and teaching uh, AP bio at a high school. Um, so overall, like I said, it's incredibly solid. I, it's written and created by Mike O'Brien, who, oh. yeah, he, he, see, he is a former SNL writer. He was on the cast even for a couple of seasons, um, and he is he has a famous web series among my condo uh, <laughs> called Seven Minutes in Heaven, which is fucking hilarious. I love him as a personality. I love him in general. He's genuinely hilarious. He had some of the most bizarre sketches that SNL's ever aired. Uh, and so I did expect something a little more weird out of this show, like because I know what he, he's capable of. Did he work on Master or um, not Master uh, Man Seeking Woman? I'm sure that he had a hand in. I think that we actually did read that he like wrote an episode or two. Yeah, because Simon Rich, former SNL writer, created that show. Um, so yeah, I was expecting something a bit more bizarre, but the reality of it is this is a it's net- NBC. It's a network sitcom. It's produced by uh, Broadway video, which is Lauren Michaels production company. And it's executive produced by Seth Meyers and Michael Shoemaker, who is an SNL guy who mm. now EPs for Seth Meyers. So it's definitely like a, you know, an in-house NBC job. Um, so it is, it's not, it's not like an inspired show. It's not like it's coming out of nowhere with these premises. It's very by the book. But it's very good. And it has to fit that NBC exactly. uh, half hour it's, formula. Yeah, and it's not it like it's not great. The strengths of the show, A, like I mentioned before, the casting is incredible. Uh Glenn Howerton is I mean, he I think he's the most underrated character on Always Sunny and his ability to play as a, 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 a sociopath. So, a yeah. sociopath who turns into a psychopath yeah. <laughs> later on in the show. He is I think he's unbelievable. I love that dude and I wish he was in more, so I was just happy to see him. Uh all of the students 
are brilliantly cast in the show because it's it only it's not like he has a bunch of classes there's just one class that the show focuses on they're all these kids are knocking it out of the park like their performances are really really great they're selling jokes that are good but not great and they're making them into great jokes um the other and essentially the only other strength of the show is that it's funny like the show isn't it's not trying to get deep. You know what I mean? Like it's a sitcom. It's not trying to do anything. It's not going to be like the good place where it gives you like exactly moral. Kind Does it of, get yeah. raunchy? You can't. Ex- yeah. Well, I mean mildly, but not extremely, yeah. but it, I mean, that's, you're exactly right, Hunter. It's not the good place is an exception to a rule where it gets extremely deep for a network sitcom. This show is, is not trying to do anything like profound or anything like that. And that's fine. Cause it's a sitcom. Um, I would put it around the tier. I think it's better than most sitcoms on TV right now. Overall, I would put it at the tier of probably New Girl and Brooklyn Nine Nine, where it's it's definitely below uh, NBC's uh, you know early aughts heyday of The Office and Parks and Rec. It's below that level, but everything is below that level. Yeah, you know what I mean. It's still really really good. Um, there, but there are some there like issues with the show. There are reasons that it's not on this high level. So I want I really thought about it because. Uh, this has been discussed on the watch before and it's such a true concept that I think this show is kind of screwed as far as a huge audience goes because it's competing with the office and parks and rec, even though they're not on the air, everyone has Netflix. Everyone has both of those shows at their disposal. That's why I didn't watch this show. And I'm sure partially you guys, if I could just put on the office, I'm not going to put on some show that's like pretty good. Or I would rather put on Always Sunny in Philadelphia, the yeah. Alan Howerton thing. Or even because, Community, because Community's on Hulu. Yeah, exactly. To be perfectly honest with you, like one of the reasons why I didn't watch this show, I thought the trailer for it actually didn't look bad. It looked interesting and everything, but I never really got around to it just because I think that a little bit of me was just a little bit bitter that Glenn Howerton was doing this instead of making a new season of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, yeah. where at this point, FX just lets Always Sunny, like whatever they want to do, they just fucking and let them yeah. go there and just yeah. how raunchy and fucking dark and twisted it'll all get yeah. like you just you trust in them as that is as that is kind of a weakness of the show is like it's he's despicable but like in always sunny everyone's despicable so he's and comp- like i'm sure he can't be nearly as like half as maniacal, oh no yeah like, absolutely truly an evil human being as yeah he exactly is he's sunny. he's not at that level and no one else is always sunny isn't a writing experiment and and yeah. how you can create a funny show where you hate every single character <laughs> this show isn't that it has you know it has a lot more standard elements to it and it's competing with the whole catalog of always sunny we can put on whatever episode we want at any given second so i don't think it's gonna like you know make a big impact but i'm just saying it's a pretty good show other weaknesses um premise wise like it's not always totally believable which is funny to say because always sunny is never believable it's absurd Mm. this show is trying to be somewhat rooted in reality and i i kind of wish it was a little more like school of rock because the premises of both of these shows are very similar where the teacher is not really teaching these kids um, the difference is that in School of Rock, Jack Black is hiding this fact from the principal, who is Joan Cusack, and, and it's he's very elaborately hiding it. And that's a major plot point of the, of the movie, and it makes it funnier. In this show, he is just openly not teaching these kids, and he's openly a bad person. And the principal, played by Patton Oswalt, is just like, okay. like It's, <laughs> it's kind of like it would be a lot funnier if there were consequences, and there are no consequences in this show. It's like the, the show has no room to kind of grow. Yeah. It's kind of boxing itself in yeah, a little bit. kind of. And there's there's a parent-teacher, like just like in School of Rock, where all the parents come to the school, hmm. and they visit. Um, 
and in the school of rock i think it handles it better because they realize that this guy is not teaching them and then obviously there are ultimate consequences in that movie but in this show he is openly like to all these parents he's blatantly showing that he's like not a good teacher and he's not really teaching them at all and much like school of rock he's using them for his own good like in the show he's using them for his schemes to like get revenge on people he hates and stuff like that and they just they just cut away do you think do you think it's going to be renewed it'll definitely be renewed it's definitely good enough but that that part bothered me um do do you think it's better than the mick I never watched the Mick, honestly. Okay, the Mick looks I, bad. So, yeah, I just I didn't apparently know if it's you guys all right. It, so I've, that's why I've heard with the Mick is that it did it. It never really looked like something yeah. that would appeal to me, but I've heard that it is. I mean, not bad. Yeah, I really. I mean, I like her, uh, but I watched this show over the Mick because I also really like Mike O'Brien, mm-hmm. the creator of the show. Um, another issue with this show is it's funny we were talking about this Ernest, and you were like yeah i really like the uh the color grading in like the trailers i saw for it just the show looks different it looks- yes well the thing okay so yeah, yeah it is it's a super blue and white show yeah and at first like like you when i like started i was like oh this looks pretty fresh but it's like uh, after a while it's kind of blinding like it's grading and there's not a creative like decision like there's not a creative reason that this is a blindingly white and blue show you find yourself like aching for some warmer tones yeah it's well and yeah and like with a show like breaking bad the color grading was extremely intentional it was yellow to reflect the mood of the entire show and the setting and everything this show is set in a school and i just have no idea why sometimes like every single character is like making my eyes hurt with how white they are yeah look. i almost wonder if that was supposed to be like a thing with the setting where like you know you picture like the schools and the hallways with the classic like big like just white white yeah. lights above you i mean but, like I, it, that definitely that makes yeah. sense but it carries on into any scene that's not even in the school and it's yeah. just after a while it is it's kind of grating on your eyes which is a weird thing you would never think that a major critique of a show of a sitcom would be the color grading (laughs) but it's so strange in this um but that's i mean that's not a huge deal uh i mean the bigger deals are the fact that it deals with a lot of standard sitcom things it kind of also rushes to establish itself where there are two different types of pilots there's a prototype pilot where the entire episode like the seinfeld pilot where it's just it gets straight into the show it's not setting up anything and then there's a uh, premise pilot where the whole episode like breaking bad more more often with dramas it's dedicated to establishing what's going on in this world this show it's for about 30 seconds it lays premise and then it just gets straight into it and i almost wanted like just give me like five minutes of explaining this because the way it starts is just fucking absurd like he crashes his car into the school's like big (laughs) sign and he he stumbles in he's like hey i'm your new teacher and he like gives some exposition and then it starts Uh, oh oh, (laughs) jeez yeah but anyway i like like i said though the show is really good the main drivers of the cast and the writing paula pell is she's she's written for snl for about 25 years um and she is so incredibly funny and she's underutilized and so like she's in a lot of stuff but she's just a, a little bit part and you might recognize her she is probably the best performance in the whole show she plays like a administrative assistant or something like that it's about to wrap up its season it's only 12 episodes from what i can yeah, tell. like i want to support this show because it's it is a bummer that it's competing with like the all-time greats that we have at our disposal at any given moment. And this is a good show, mm-hmm. but right. it's, you know, it's just pretty good. It's not a great. That's yet. Maybe it'll get great. 
That's AP Bio on NBC and Hulu. Um, another NBC joint that I got to see is last night's Saturday Night Live um, with John Mulaney hosting. Yeah, baby. Uh, and Jack White as musical guest. Really solid episode. Uh, of course, you know, this being SNL, there are some sketches that you're just kind of like ah. you're just like all right like yeah. can i plus like the skip button just yeah to or like even some the of the one. weekend update bits you know it's it's like sometimes i wish that snl wasn't like an hour and 10 hour and 15 minute show and it was more of like a 45 minute show right um and i wish there was more kyle i always <laughs> wish there was more kyle there is a cut for time sketch though that i haven't that's, that's been able good. to see that might feature some kyle yeah um i won't go on too much about this because i do want you guys to check it out but i'm obviously yeah, um, i'm gonna the cold open is awesome you got robert de niro and ben stiller in there as uh uh mueller and cohen uh, cohen respectively yeah yeah great great sketch oh my i was like i was looking at de niro and i was like oh my god is that robert de niro <laughs> as robert mueller because yeah because he has the facial prosthetic jaw on yeah i saw the thumbnail it was it was really yeah. really good this this is i mean i'm i'm incredibly like it's so lame but i'm like proud somewhere oh, deep no, inside I, me i feel that way too like whenever uh during the bill Hader episode like whenever john mulaney came out and he actually got like an ovation like that yeah. was so just like oh yeah. man like this guy like he fucking made it yeah like, he's i think doing it i now. think i've mentioned it but i've been a huge john mulaney fan since high school and to see him break like this is like it's crazy because right after he wrote for snl for five years can you guys, this is a little trivia. Can you name the other two people who only wrote for SNL and then went on to host? No clue. It's it's like a prestigious list. It's Larry David oh, shit. and Conan O'Brien. Oh, That's okay. it. That's wow, literally yeah. it. And now Mulaney. And now John Mulaney. That's so this, awesome. this is really exciting for him. Um, he has a new especially sp- because his show was such a failure. Yeah, he, yeah <laughs> right after he finished writing for SNL, he got a TV show and it failed... Uh, spectacular. It was really bad, <laughs> like um, really, really bad. Yeah, I think it could have. I think maybe it could have evolved into something good, but it wasn't going to make it past one season. Uh, but yeah, anyway, he has a special coming out May first on Netflix. That's kind of what he was promoting. But I'm just, I'm. So, I mean, I didn't even see it, but I'm so happy for him. Yeah, man. no, like, I, I really recommend you guys check was, it out because he was the comedian that got me into stand up comedy. When I was some... like, I was probably 16. I was like. I had never seen someone who just like, he was like, yeah, I'm just like some guy and I don't know what I'm doing. And I watched a lot of TV and movies. Yeah. And I was like, holy shit. <laughs> well, he, Me too. His, his comedic sensibility is like very self-aware about how kind of corny he is. So he's always pointing fun at like his yeah. norminess. But then he'll like allude to his darker past every once in a while in the so. monologue he does yeah yeah, yeah 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 and that's something i've been waiting for because he hasn't done that in a stand-up yet but if you listen to any i there was an episode of you made it weird with pete holmes where yeah, he's he like goes in where he's like yeah i was at georgetown university addicted to cocaine for a long time like and it's like how would you ever guess that why don't you talk about that comedy is all about exercising demons um, i guess it's tough for him to cope with that he's still sure. young he's I'm not sure. like a 50 year old man yeah um, and his whole persona is kind of like a squeaky clean, like yeah. every man. Right. Yeah. You know? That's this whole thing that he like pokes fun at is just like, look at me. I'm just like a tall, like just a tall yeah, I'm Catholic just, boy. I'm just some idiot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Even though but he's very smart. The the standout sketch for sure is the lobster sketch, which has apparently has been like on like underneath a shelf somewhere for like five yeah. years. Uh, he so yeah, for this episode, he brought back his two writing partners that he worked with every single week at SNL. Simon Rich, creator of Man vs. Woman, which is a great show, and then uh, America Sawyer. 
and so man seeking, man seeking woman. I was like man versus, man versus woman. woman. <laughs> kind no, of that sounds bad. <laughs> that yeah. sounds like a bad show. That sounds like a Spike TV game <laughs> show. <laughs> but yeah, no man seeking woman, which is a great show. And then America Sawyer, and so they came back. Two of the, and uh, that sketch was written by Simon Rich like seven years Dude, ago, this, and it just never made air. This sketch blew my mind. Like it is by far the best sketch of the of the episode, and it it takes a premise of Keenan dressed up as a lobster and just it spirals out of control. Like I, it just it's just one of those sketches that like the bit you you think you've seen the end of the bit and then it keeps going. I mean, those are then, always the best. And sketches. then you think you've seen it again and then it just keeps going again nice and like what's funny is that they obviously originally wrote it for keenan too like, yeah like eight years ago and he's <laughs> yeah. just still there and uh oh god i just i love this sketch it, it's it's definitely the standout moment and uh w- one thing i picked out is like it's the second sketch in the show where Mulaney plays a server at a restaurant <laughs> there's another sketch so That's it's funny. like you see him playing a waitress but in drag and then in the lobster True. sketch he comes out dressed as like uh you know regular suit and tie yeah. but um it, it was just funny seeing him as like a server in two different sketches or like Mulaney, what's up yeah hey, i mean his all i've seen like i said is his uh monologue and i'll talk about everything else next week because i'm probably not going to be able to shut up about this oh but, yeah <laughs> uh the monologue was really good which made me happy because um some of his recent performances have not been super great stand-up wise one thing about Mulaney that is both good and bad is that he like as far as like edginess goes he's totally toothless like he's never going to say anything controversial um which is kind of it almost seems like it's kind of for a bygone era in a way where like now we kind of want people to say things that are but maybe honestly, that's why he's blown up I, honestly i kind of love that about him that he's like such like just a clean comic that he's like the anti dane cook and like all these not <laughs> dane cook is probably the best like yeah. <laughs> recent guy but just like all these comics like that you see out there all day these days are like they want to like try and make some kind of political statement or they're just out there with like over raunchiness and i appreciate that Mulaney's comedy he's like funny his, his humor seems more genuine than a lot of other it's, people i mean it's it's like yeah it reminds me of comics like brian regan that yeah. are just not they're not even famous but their jokes are so good and they get no recognition so you're right you're right in that regard but at a certain point, like when he said in his monologue, like that he smoked cocaine, yeah. that I was like, thank you for finally saying something that like some people wouldn't like. Right. Because at a certain point, the entire point of comedy is to kind of to disrupt. And I just he, want a little bit of that. From he him. doesn't feel the need to be topical either. Yeah, no, you know, he doesn't. He, he doesn't have to get political. He doesn't have to be Dave Chappelle. I just want a little more. Which is a great fit for SNL because SNL kind of like has been struggling with that recently of like dealing with all the crazy political shit but also just being snl and being weird and funny yeah outside from all Here, the yeah here's shit. a here's an idea get rid of fucking alec baldwin which they kind of have recently. yeah exactly i mean up. there's i'm because there's been kind of a thing of like now you know twitter the internet is kind of being like yeah. hey that's enough More yeah like how about you actually use your actual cast members use your cast maybe hire james adomian who's a way better impressionist than all these celebrities are also, more De Niro. Get more De Niro in there. Always more De Niro. <laughs> Every week, um, Robert De Niro. Oh, one last thing. There is a Wild Wild Country spoof mm. in this episode, oh, wow. which caught me by surprise, and it is spot on. That's it is 
fucking spot on. That's on brand for Mulaney because he's really into docu series. <laughs> he's super into the jokes. Yeah, I mean, he, I he's away. like he's worked on documentary now and stuff. like yeah, that Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, yeah. Um, honestly, now that I'm thinking about it, uh, Keenan is kind of like the MVP of this episode. Oh, really? Keenan, yeah. Ke- Keenan's I'm- needed an episode because I feel like Keenan at this point has kind of just become the guy where he just kind of makes he a doesn't face. try anymore. He just makes a face yeah. at the camera and everybody loses it. But it's not necessarily like he's doing anything right. that's super funny. Yeah. He, I mean, he is he's become all time underrated SNL cast member where yeah. he is such a glue guy. The um, Chadwick Boseman hosted last week and the Black Jeopardy sketch was carried by Keenan. Yeah. And all the credit went to T'Challa, obviously. It, it was a solid sketch though i, really it, I mean it was it. it was a great sketch yeah. but keenan is the reason that that was a great sketch yeah. he's so so good and he gets he gets utilized in really broad roles but keenan is i'm telling you guys he's underrated at this point they they also bring back the classroom set that's popped up a couple times recently with uh keenan as the teacher and uh it's actually a, a they actually do get a little topical with the whole like school shooting like walkout the the whole walkout sure. thing oh, protest yeah. thing yeah with for the gun reform and it was a really solid sketch and Mulaney like makes a dick joke of it and it's really <laughs> great uh so yeah definitely recommend the episode we we don't keep up with SNL every week but seeing Mulaney like we just yeah. we have to acknowledge it for the triumph it is yeah I I showed you guys new in town our freshman year of college yeah that, and we we got to see him too yeah and we saw he came to our our college um but yeah, I I've seen New in, New in Town is the special that like every every comedian is like, oh, I used to listen to old Bill Cosby records yeah. and blah blah blah. Um, that that's the one that I've seen probably twenty times. Yeah, New in Town. I mean, even it's, Comeback Kid is also special. just both of them are really really great. All right, specials. let's um yeah, so that's Melania SNL. Let's move on to Hilarity for Charity on Netflix. This is the new Seth Rogen, um, Variety Hour. I would call it. It's a strange thing. Did you guys see this? No, yes, I, I saw it. Okay, I, I didn't. Um, you know, yeah. I uh, don't really recommend this. Yeah, I, I, I think it's not sure that great. I would rather them have put out the different bits on YouTube. I, I know Netflix would never do that. Um, or maybe if they would put them as separate clips underneath, like if you could pick like episode, like quote unquote. You don't episodes. have to watch the entire yeah, thing well, to see the bits because it's. You, there's a lot in there. You have this opening um, like live sketch that's really weird because it's in front of an audience, but it, they have like large cameras filming yeah. the, the I, set. I thought that part was cool. How they it did, was cool. They did this weird, yeah, it was like a fourth wall breaking thing where it would be part of a pre-taped bit, but then it would be Seth Rogen on stage with like a lighting guy like above him and then cameras. And then it would cut so you see the cameras and the lighting guy so you know that he's on the stage. And but and you get Nick Kroll in there, which makes the, yeah. the skit. That was that was He's a great. So good. Yeah, that was a really good opening sketch. I, uh, I I mean, I definitely wouldn't recommend this to everyone, but I would say every year Comedy Central does uh, the Night of Too Many Stars. Oh. It's 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 like that. It's a yeah. big benefit comedy show. This where, one's for um, Alzheimer's. Yeah, Alzheimer's. Uh, you know, Alzheimer's. I guess uh, funding for taking care of people with Alzheimer's and trying to find a cure too. Yeah, so it's I mean overall the purpose was to fill this big auditorium with rich people to pay money um, to this cause, and it did that. I think that this was probably a little bit better than the average night of too many stars, um, and the reason is that it was on Netflix, and Netflix, 
whoever was in charge of like you know vetoing things for this special did not veto anything yeah so this sketch went i mean this this uh this special has a lot of lewdness in it there is a justin Roiland bit where he turned in this I animated did see that. short yeah, I did you see saw that it bit. yeah Dude. that's Imagine I that. can't believe that that was like this allowed is, to be a thing. This is a charity on there. <laughs> thing. This is an a, an Alzheimer's charity event, and I, I'm not going to go into detail of like what happens, or maybe I should go into detail so that I mean, people know. That... No, don't spoil too much. <laughs> See, you seem like you don't really like it. I honestly loved it. No, I I love Justin Roiland. Like I love Rick and Morty. I love how fucking weird and just out there and and no he's he he doesn't hesitate with like how fucked up he can get mm. but it just didn't fit with like the point of this and then it w- it came out of nowhere and then like Seth like doesn't even he just comes out there and he's like huh, that makes me happy yeah and you're just like I just saw the most fucked up thing ever and you're just gonna blow right past it it's like you can't even recover from it I I, I don't know I feel like it worked like the crowd liked it I, I didn't think they would, but like after that sketch, there was like a solid like 20 seconds of laughing. And that's when Seth is laughing, too. And he's like that. I was just in <laughs> shock. Like exactly. My eyes hurt. I I don't know. Because you said that to me before I watched it. You were like, this honestly didn't belong. And I was like, oh, don't be a wuss. Like, it's probably fine. <laughs> it is it is one of the most brutally like <laughs> like obscene things I've ever seen in any media. Yeah. OK, so and that's kind of because I saw that bit the Justin Roiland bit but is that kind of as extreme as that whole oh no charity it's I mean it starts out with it? like a really over-the-top dick joke yeah it has it has dick like jokes which is you know joke. that's Seth Rogen's thing and yeah. then it, and then it has stand-up from a lot of various people who do you know varying levels of good Michael Che I thought was the best yeah I actually agree Michael Che uh I think he let it off and he was great his stand-up was good Tiffany Haddish was T- there too. Tiffany she was great Tiffany Haddish went on she yeah she was funny Mulaney went on there and his stand-up was like pretty good but not it wasn't top tier Millennium at all um and the, yeah there were a couple other people and then there were you know various other little sketches intertwined in there like pre-tape bits and overall i think it's solid i have a i have a note for seth rogan he okay so the first stage of his career was weed and dicks right this stage that he's in right now is like a meta stage where he's like, yeah, you guys only know me for weed and dicks. Yeah. But then he's like, so anyway, here's some weed and dicks. Exactly. <laughs> There's the so, whole the whole bit that makes fun of uh, um, the uh, nature documentary, the planet yeah, Earth. Yeah, 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 yeah. Planet yeah. Earth, but it's like planet Seth. It's just, it's, <laughs> it's simultaneously making fun of his whole bit, but it's also perpetuating the same yeah it's bit. like he still can't so, come up with anything more than that yeah, so he's so trying to just be meta about I it i know and he is a funny guy but it's like stage three like ditch it man i'm sorry but i'm like, just kind of done with seth rogan and his whole shtick like i just like it's i believe me like i really i love like super bad and knocked up and some of his classic things but at this point like i'm just kind of so done with his middle school level of humor like i just i want there to be like evolve as a comedian exactly it's just otherwise i just don't care yeah because it has i mean it is it has evolved a good amount since like super bad with like this is the end was like basically a a very meta version with like higher concepts i love that i really like this is the end i still have a soft place for super bad i still think that super bad is just a really really good comedy and it but it's just like okay, you so you've had the the one phase and you've had the meta phase making f- fun of phase one. Now just now it's time to move on. 
Um, Maybe but, he needs to go to Africa for like 20 years, do the whole yeah, Chappelle bit. But with that said, so the part of the special that got serious, like all the Night of Too Many Stars, like any benefit show does, it has to talk about the actual like devastating cause that they're right. donating to. It did that probably better than any Comedy Central special I've ever seen. Yeah, it made me care. I was like, okay. It really, yeah. like it shows you how uh, Alzheimer's has affected him and his wife personally. And it really, it genuinely is kind of heart wrenching. And he has a really, really well written, like a good little monologue about how like, like, you know, I didn't know how to write this into the special because it's really sad. But like, I want to show people that it's OK to be sad and it's OK to live with these horrible things. And that was genuinely it was such a good, like, honest moment. Um, th- and that part made the Justin Roiland bit even more out of place. Yeah, because <laughs> it's like you're making me care about like this really heartfelt cause while I'm still thinking about like the traumatizing shit that I just saw. I mean, I'm just saying though, I like genuinely when I was watching that, it was like nothing makes me like open my mouth in shock anymore. Yeah. And that did it. And I like, I love it for that. Honestly, I do. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I really liked it. I still am. I'm. I'm gonna check out the full thing. Um, just it's seeing fine. seeing just that. Bad. I think it was on like Reddit or something, and somebody just pulled that sketch yeah. and put it it's on like, there. You have to see and this. I just watched that, and I was like so jarred from it that I was like, "Is this what the entire fucking event is? Like, is this even? Is this even like trying to help stop? Like, help yeah, this charity? Exactly. What is this? It was so out of place, but I loved. I loved if that. It reminded me. Like, it made me think of maybe how things will be in twenty years. Like, maybe we'll be, as a society, we'll be able to see this most disgusting things and be like, well, that's not real. It's animated and it's fine. <laughs> and I just saw that and we're moving yeah. on. But um, overall, I mean, it's not like it's not like we would recommend The Night of Too Many Stars to anyone right. either. Mm. Like, these things, they're not quite sketched, they're not quite stand-up, and they're worse than both. You know what I mean? And I think yeah. that for what it is, it did really well, but it's still, like, it's not, it's just... It's competing with Netflix. It's not competing with what is on Comedy Central at that exact time. Yeah. You know? Uh, so I, I wouldn't recommend it, but I personally enjoyed it because I'm a big comedy fuckboy. Yeah. All right. Well, we have one more thing to talk about, but we're going to take a break first. So, well, two two more things. Yeah. Oh, I, I meant one more thing before the review. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, I got to play a couple games of Fortnite. Yeah, really just got to oh, get a quick oh, uh, Fortnite oh. in and uh, you guys we'll be play back. Some PUBG or what? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Okay. okay, cool. All right, tight. BRB. I know that usually for these things we kind of 
or flub a little bit of the truth of what may or may not be exaggerated. Yeah. When we when we uh, just kind of casually come back from the break. Yeah, you know, we got to entertain. Everything but. that I'm about to tell you is 100% true. I believe you. Okay. All right. Like, no I, lie. I, I also have a true story. If we're just going to have a little story no, time before we get No back. lie. Okay, so right. I'm sitting in the theater. I, I went to see All the Dogs by myself, um, which I recommend everyone should go to the movies by themselves. That's It's totally fine. It's fun. I did. Um, so I'm sitting there. Same. On, uh, on one side, I have a little, probably five or six-year-old boy who was totally checked out of the movie the whole time. Did not care at all about it. And then on the other side of me, that not directly, you know, there's some space between us. I had I had some uh, some some breathing room. On the other side, this man, pretty large, white, short-haired man, sits down next to me with a backpack. Now, when a when a a large white man sits next to you in a theater with a backpack, you start to get a little paranoid. You start to think, how am I going to survive this one? How am I going to live through this? But, you know, I should have known. Like, don't judge a book by its cover, right? Come on, guys. Come on. You racist. He does he doesn't he doesn't pull out a gun. He pulls out food. And this food is a big old bowl of ramen with two chopsticks sticking out of it. Hey, at least he was cult being culturally appropriate. I'm I'm dead serious that is i'm dead serious and <laughs> that's like less he, racist it, than the movie was. and it wasn't it wasn't takeout he brought a nice bowl from home he made okay he prepared this he was by himself it wasn't a date <laughs> he pulled out this nice bowl of ramen fuck yeah if people are calling this isle of dogs cultural appropriation that's the most culturally appropriative shit i've ever heard in my life and not only did he do this and you know was very into his noise of the backpack and the food. And then, you know, was proceeded, he slurping? Proceeded to, um, no, he wasn't noisy eating, but he was noisy yeah. with like the preparingness of it. And then he proceeded to open not one, but two cans of what I thought were soda, but could have been beer. I, I'm just going to assume that it was Diet let Coke. In? Right? How That's the what fuck I was did he get in? Yeah. But here's, here's the kicker before he took a single bite, he held up the bowl to the screen and took a picture of the bowl with the movie in the background and then just <laughs> sat there during the first 10 minutes of the movie and typed out whatever his little Snapchat or whatever it was of him watching Olive Dogs and eating ramen. So he did this all just for like the bit, just for like, he the, was trying to just do for a the meme. gram. He's making a meme. He probably said like, you know, I keep that motherfucking thing on me you know, or something. For all I know, he was probably talking to all his Japanese friends and type the message in Japanese because... Was he white? Yeah. Are you sure wow. he wasn't a dog? Was he Brian Cranston? No. God, there's no joke here. There's no meme here. This just actually happened to you. It, it just actually happened. All right. Well, we're back. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that was a bummer. Before we get to Isle of Dogs, let's, let's talk a little bit about Andre the Giant, which is the new HBO documentary from... From... Okay. So to give a little bit of backstory here, um, I am... I think that we can all say that we're fans here. I consider myself a huge, huge Bill Simmons fan. I've been reading his columns from whenever, way back for whenever he wrote on Grantland and ESPN since I was in like 
very early middle school days. Like I've always been following Bill. Yeah, Simmons same. I used to amazing. have I used to have ESPN the magazine, and he was already the best. Yeah, ESPN I would literally just like keep then. like just I would keep the magazines, just like reread his columns and shit like that. And he yeah. created this website Grantland, which is kind of the inspiration for what he does now with the Ringer. Which Grantland was kind of a combination of sports, pop culture, a little bit of like politics and stuff. It was really like a site for everything. Um, Did it start out as that, or was it just sports no, at the beginning? He no, he started he started it as like an ESPN prestige project of good sports pop culture journalism, um, and because it was good, it did not do well for ESPN. Yeah. Uh, um, but yeah, so he that his whole deal with ESPN ended up completely failing. Um, and but he, one yeah, of the Grantland things has been dead for what two three years now. It's, yeah. It was it was still going for a little bit after Bill left, but it really like it wasn't the same after he left. Yeah, exactly. Um, he did also one of his biggest things that he did for ESPN was he started the whole uh, series that became known as Thirty for Thirty. Um, at the time, it was known as ESPN Films or something like that. Um, but then he is, oh, these are the short little uh, these are sports stars. they're like an hour and a half long. Um, and ESPN is they've kind of slowed down on these since Bill left because this was kind of his whole idea. But uh, this whole like series of sports documentaries and there are actually some really really fucking good sports documentaries on there. Um, yeah, he he really like he brought like actual good shit to espn and that's why he could not stay 30 for 30 is incredible all these documentaries are like they're not just good sports documentaries they're There's good, good documentaries, documentaries. Yeah, yeah they're really good all pretty much all of them have really good storytelling and um growing up one of my favorite documentaries was uh the fab five which follows yeah, yeah, the yeah. uh the michigan basketball players in the 90s that's my and favorite and yeah, that was my favorite. And Bill brought back the director from the Fab Five to make this Andre the Giant documentary. Um, Jason Hare is his name. Um, and this whole documentary, Andre the Giant, has kind of been a passion project of his for forever. He was trying to get this made in the very early days of 30 for 30, but he just didn't have the resources for it. He's been trying to make this movie for about like 15, 20 years at this point, just because he. it's always been one of those things where he deserved that there he thought that there deserved to be a good Andre the Giant documentary because he's such a fascinating human being but not only was it difficult to get the resources to it it was difficult to get the rights because WWE is very very specific with who they give their rights out to especially for somebody who for like kind footage of, or for interviews for both for really. all of it yeah, yeah for, for access to all the entirety of their catalog interesting and that's when you consider that that's really one of the things that I think makes this documentary so impressive not only does it tell a truly tragic story of this man who was he was both a man and a myth just because yeah. this guy, he existed in the seventies, early eighties before he came out before cable television was the thing before there was the internet. And it was just one of those things where you would go around to like your local gas station store and you would just see like a WWF magazine that just had Andre the giant on there. It was all these legendary stories of him. He was more than just a man. He was seven foot four, 475 pounds. Like this was just a monster of a human being. But but he was a human being, and that's the strength of the story is that he, through this film, he is immortalized, like, not as this myth, but as, like, this actual person who was sick mm -hmm. and who died, like, prematurely. He was only, what, 43, 40? Yeah, 46, something 45, like that. 45, 46? Yeah. I mean, the reason he was huge was because of a thing that killed him. Yeah, he, has, he was born with acromegaly or giganticism, as it's known, and... This kind of it's a, it's a pituitary gland tumor, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's it causes just like 
way, way overproduction of growth hormone, which everybody just has a normal amount of growth hormone. But whenever you just have this tumor on your pituitary gland, it secretes massive amounts of it. Like that's yeah. why they talk about, I mean, they show throughout the documentary the size of his hands, but they even say at one point that his ankles, his ankle bones are the size of a normal human being's knee bones. Yeah. He, and that tells you just how fucking huge he was. We, we live in an age where being a giant is kind of, it's less of a big deal than it used to be because of the NBA specifically, where we see, we see huge dudes every day. Shaq is humongous, but this guy proportionately is giant. It's not just like one part of him is big mm-hmm. because of the gigantism. His, his fingers aren't just long. They're like thick. They're it's, like fucking sausages. It's gen, it's still a spectacle to see this dude um, at his peak. They said, you know, he was seven, four and around 500 pounds. Um, he was just fucking massive. So the documentary covers his upbringing in like the, a very quiet French countryside uh, into getting into wrestling. And then eventually, you know, he moved uh, to America where he was picked up by uh, the WWF, which was at the time only a New England uh, you know, it, all the wrestling circuits were more regional back then. And that was his main circuit, which makes sense because he was on TV a lot in New England in the 70s, which is when Bill Simmons was a kid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> That's why he's so into this whole story. Um, overall, I thought this documentary was really cool because I'm not... I've never, ever been like a, I wasn't a wrestling kid. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think that it's safe to say that none of us were really into wrestling. Yeah. The The thing that makes me really appreciate this film is the fact that it's it's one of those documentaries where like you really learn something yeah i did i love that the whole b story in this movie is kind of explaining to you the rise of wrestling which i mean for i i'd say for most most people especially nowadays um and like now we have the wwe and now they have like wrestlemania 40 or whatever it is but nobody no, like kids, I feel like really know like how wrestling came to be, and this is great at educating you on how wrestling came to rise and came to take over the country. The country because this was before the peak of the NBA or the NFL or anything like that. Like wrestling was the biggest sporting thing aside from boxing in the country. Yeah, and so most of the meat of the story takes place before that, though. Before yeah. it was such a huge deal in the seventies. Well, um, it, it talks about how Andre kind of facilitated the yeah, the, he, the growth of, of the yeah. popularity of Yeah, exactly. Of Essentially, the WWF would kind of franchise him and let him travel around the entire world. And he was, you know, wherever he went, he was like the biggest deal because he was mm, yeah. to, just to see someone like that, especially back then, was just like, I saw Andre the Giant. But there's yeah. just so like, much darkness. I to saw that. a giant. And, but yeah, it, that's that's the best part of the story is it gets into the darkness of because of his gigantism he was in so much pain all the time and he was getting worked like a dog at the end of the documentary it says he he played in over 5000 wrestling matches in the course of his life and it, and it wasn't just physical pain it must have been emotional mental yeah, spiritual yeah i mean he kind of, he talks about there's a really good uh, comparison where they talk about him versus Muhammad Ali, who were like the two biggest athletes in the world at that time. And if Muhammad Ali wanted to, he could just put on a put on some sunglasses, put on a disguise, and he could go out about his day. Andre didn't have that luxury. Anywhere you go, like he just fucking stood out like a sore thumb. Like you can't hide it when you're that massive of a person. Yeah. So so this documentary is really interesting. I I don't think it's on the level of the best thirty for thirty films, uh, for a couple of reasons. Um particularly so (laughs) i think that there were a few times that they were definitely stretching for the andre centered story 
I think that they had a way easier time finding things to talk about when they were discussing Hulk Hogan and the rise yeah, of WWE. That's that's the biggest knock I got to give this documentary <laughs> is it turns into a Hulk Hogan documentary yeah, which for was, like 20 minutes. Which was almost a little more interesting because yeah. and that's just because the quality of the footage they got is so much better. Yeah, I mean, I can't entirely knock that just because, I mean, Andre, like, this all existed with him. He was kind of a myth. Like, they, I did listen to a, an interview that they actually did with Jason Hare, and they talk about whenever they, like, giving the notes and stuff, that the biggest note they got was, like, we need more Andre in here. Yeah, because exactly. just, there isn't enough footage of him. Yeah. And I understand, and I kind of liked whenever it became a Hulk Hogan thing, because it eventually as we reach the end of the documentary it reaches this point where it shows the passing of the torch on who yeah. is the the wrestling's golden child um one thing I, I i will say i love this documentary i think this is one of the best documentaries i've seen in a while to be perfectly honest um just in the way that it balanced the it the way that it balanced the juggling act of both the man and the myth we have we see him as this breaking down human being but we we also hear these stories where people say that they saw him drink 118 beers just in one sitting and like he wasn't even drunk and they would talk about just like all these weird things about him just because he was such a huge guy like he would just have like slews of women that just come into him which I, how does Andre the Giant have sex is one of my biggest questions he after watching didn't. the documentary. I mean, he had a daughter. He had a daughter. If his fingies are that thick, like he's got to have a girl who can who can really <laughs> yeah. must, muster something. I'll tell you that. I do, but I just I kind of love those ideas. And just some of these things that you hear about um, with him were like he would drink a case of wine at breakfast. Just to hang out. Just yeah, to chill. Just, he would drink 12 bottles of wine like it was nothing. But And you hear like that and you're like, oh my God, that's ridiculous. And then uh, while, as we were watching the documentary, Gaia asked me like, how does he poop? And they kind of talk about they talk that. They talk about how really his farts story. are disgusting also. But they talk about, yeah, they talk about his farts and like how Andre the Giant loved to fart because he just thought it was like hilarious how people, it would just like, it was like a whale noise. But um, And then when he was on the airplane, like, yeah, but he like, would fart and people would just <laughs> almost pass out. But like, they talk about like whenever he had to poop in places because sometimes he'd just be too big for toilets. Yeah. So he had to sit over a trash can, shit in the trash can, like Jesus. they had to dump it out. Like yeah. that's it's so fucking sad. Yeah, he had a he had a horrific life, and that angle is definitely the best angle of the documentary because it's it's really genuinely sad. Where like, this where this moment really where this uh, documentary really hit me the most was they talk about. I mean. We, we get into WrestleMania 3, which you see him just, they talk about how his life, his quality of life is just breaking down to the point that his knees are failing, his back is failing him, like, he can't even move anymore, and it, it was so tragic seeing his, uh, his best friend and his handler, like, talk about him and just get so broken up, because, like, yeah. they wanted to be there for him, but he's Andre just kind of always said he was like well I mean this is how God made me so like I mean I'll kind of uh, I'm not gonna pretend to be anything else I'm not and I'm just gonna, gonna go out whenever it's intended for me yeah it's so sad it's it's definitely a great story but that's interesting that what they said is like the note was they need more Andre material because that's what I was feeling midway through you could definitely feel the stretch that they were real they were kind of like it wasn't too bad but they were definitely struggling to find like they they talked about certain little aspects so much that it was like, is this really what you guys like? You don't yeah. have any. And there's so much just talking headshots that you they didn't really find any creative ways to tell the story well, other than just have someone talking. Yeah. There are just there are a couple the there are just a couple points where you can especially feel it. Well, first of all, 
the the story is kind of like right when I was starting to really feel it, where I was like, man, they're really struggling here. That's when they got into the whole Hulk Hogan uh, subplot, which is important to the story of Under the Giant because he did pass the torch to Hulk. But that comp- that revitalized this documentary so much that honestly, I would say the big winner of this documentary is Hulk Hogan because he comes across in interviews and in, and you know obviously footage as so like to this day he's so lucid and so articulate. He, that you forget everything that you read about him that he's a horrible person like he, he came across as so like fascinating in this documentary yeah and it's him and andre's relationship is really it's really beautiful yeah. because they try and eventually it gets like repainted because you know i mean they they acknowledge in the documentary like look this is all fake but one of the cool things about andre was is if you gave him a script that he didn't like then he would just be like fuck that and he would like try and like kill the person like yeah yeah like macho man randy savage whenever they have him fighting him and <laughs> andre just like sits on his fucking face like it's yeah it's, it's brutal crazy. Or just like steps but, on him but then you see like uh hulk and andre's relationship and as they go into the last fight which he like wanted to like mark it as it's his his going out party like he's not gonna this is gonna be his last fight and it's gonna be his first loss and they like he's like telling hulk like what to do to fight him and hulk you can just see in like the clips that they have where hulk is trying to like take care of him because he cares about him like everything they're doing they're trying to like hold him his back straight up just because they know that he's in so so much serious pain that it hurts him to move yeah it's brutal that that yeah it's it's a great it's a great like tragic comic story the comedy comes in with the clips of the old wrestling particularly when hulk comes in yeah it's so fucking. (laughs) it is really funny and it and it does part of me like i know there are a lot of people who are passionately into wrestling uh from either a partially ironic or non-ironic completely standpoint at least in the 80s clips they're fucking hilarious it's so stupid oh i mean i gotta be kidding i honestly kind of wish that i would have been a child of wrestling just because it it really is like so entertaining like you just we get that little clip of like the the pre-wrestling like feud between them where they like andre rips off hulk hogan's (laughs) shirt and it's so dramatic it's like a soap opera i love it i mean i've seen i had a buddy when i was a really little kid who was super into wwe every time i went to his house we would watch like monday night raw or whatever Mm. and i was just always fascinated by how in they could fill an arena anywhere in the country they could fill an arena of like 20 thousand people like it's so yeah those shots it of blows like my full, mind full stage. yeah um, that, the that wrestlemania insane. 3 played in front of ninety thousand people yeah yeah it was just sold out yeah arena. but overall i uh, to to wrap up i would say the, the the best part of the documentary is the story even though it does feel a bit stretched another point that it was definitely you could feel how they were stretching the andre material is when they have like an extended interview with the guy the like the clerk at the hotel who he was like oh i called andre at 8 a.m and he didn't answer well you know that that's actually like the real doorman from yeah i know but that's when they found it's just entirely pointless that's a stretch of material where he's like i called andre at eight he didn't pick up so i called him at nine he didn't pick up yeah but i mean so i called him at. i don't i wouldn't say it's a stretch because that that whole scene with him lasts like 30 seconds so it's not really it's like a couple a, minutes where i was like why is that long? why is this guy here and it's because um, they kind of stretching hey arnold schwarzenegger was in there yeah arnold schwarzenegger yeah. was in there also, also uh we got Princess robin Bride. yeah robin yeah. wright was in there which i like i i never really thought about it that 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 princess bride happened just such at the tail end of his career that they have a shot where robin wright falls in andre's arms and he's in so much pain that he can't even like 
catch Robin Wright. Like they had to suspend her down yeah, so that magic. she didn't have any any weight on him. Yeah, yeah I guess um, as a final thought, I'd say I'd recommend it if you're interest if you're curious about learning something that yeah. you don't know about this I'd say guy. if you if you like documentaries I'd recommend it to you people because I do think good. I do think it is a pretty well crafted documentary it's not too long I I've don't think that way it, better documentaries than this like from a filmmaking aspect from like just just a pure like shot comp- composition editing approach like it's not that strong it's stronger in the sense of like the 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 backbone story being told the the execution in in an aesthetic like structural sense is falls a little bit flat yeah, I but, kind the, of, but it's like a tv documentary it's hbo yeah i kind it's of HBO. i kind of agree it's like like the like for example the the scoring of it is awful it's like the yeah. most traditional like shitty sports documentary that like you've seen a million times you've heard these like shitty percussion during yeah. the little funny mo- it's just, yeah. it was just it was standard in a lot of ways but the story of it was way I think, better yeah than i do think that the story is definitely what escalates it i it's, think yeah. it's worth it just for the inf- in, uh, the informative yeah. aspect the educational aspect yeah. okay all right so that's under the giant on hbo now let's get to our review of Isle of Dogs, the new I West... love dogs. I hate dogs. <laughs> new... I hate cats. <laughs> Are you Will Toledo? <laughs> can we can we talk about that real quick? We'll Will, get into it. Yeah, this Will, is Will Toledo of Car Seat Headrest says this movie is racist. So yeah, and he's not he's not the only one, but he is. Like if you Google, because I wanted to find the actual like someone making an actual argument. Uh, there's a couple this. out there yeah there's actually some written by yeah. some asian people. exactly but if you google it he's the second person that pops up and, will and toledo, you're like a white dude will toledo you may look at him and think that he's asian but he's, he's pretty not. white he's, he's totally white, white. <laughs> um but yeah anyway this is the new wes anderson flick. i think it's his ninth film yeah he's i mean at this point he's well established you know going in what he's gonna do uh this one is another animated one in the vein of fantastic mr fox it's stop motion i never saw fantastic mr fox neither did i do you seen a? Have you seen I that? did when I was probably a junior in high school, so mm. it's been a while. I, I barely remember it. I'd have to revisit You're it. Freaking fucking baked, bro. But Wes Anderson <laughs> is coming off a pretty incredible hot streak right now, as far as films go. I mean, he had Moonrise. Grand Budapest come out in uh, 2014, Moonrise come out 2012, uh, and then before that, Fantastic Mr. Fox, and then Life of God. Really, like his I don't whole think, career is kind of. A I don't hot think streak. Wes Anderson has made a bad movie yet um i actually have never seen moonrise kingdom um i think that might be the only it's moonrise definitely kingdom good. and fantastic mr fox are the it's only the two most that like I wes seen. anderson-y movie yeah and it's also the creepiest one <laughs> see i think that life aquatic is probably the most wes anderson-y movie that i've ever seen with just how fucking quirky it is but with that movie i think that it's quirky for quirkiness sake where i think that isle of dogs kind of succeeds yeah. that its quirkiness lends to the universe that you're seeing yeah and so, it's and it's the the first time that he's taken his style and a, and kind of meshed it with like a cultural yeah a, yeah a, a, a different culture so so let's yeah let's go over our like overall thoughts although he kind of like, did do that with darjeeling limited with indian culture i mean yeah mm. and and grand budapest yeah. a little bit so but, so what's your like quick take on this like 30 seconds okay this movie is pretty good maybe really good but it could have been perfect uh, if it had just snipped all of the human characters. That's my take. <laughs> I love everything with the dogs and everything with the humans. 
I just did not vibe with mm. at all. Okay. Um, I think it looks beautiful. It's honestly visually stunning. Honestly, um, but the movie just it's very uneven for me um, because of the decision to not subtitle the human characters. Uh, you don't understand anything that they're saying because we don't speak Japanese. Um, you you get the idea of what they're saying, like through context clues and through uh, translators, um, but you don't ever really connect with them as characters because we don't really... Yeah, we don't know. We 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 don't understand what's coming out of their mouths. All right. Um, I'm I'm probably higher on this movie than you are. Then because, mm. a, I think this movie is maybe one of the top five coolest looking movies I've seen in my life. Like it's oh, it's beautiful. I don't like. I'm a vocal. I'm vocally usually against movies that look good and are stupid, like Pacific Rim. Um, this movie is so like. <laughs> I can't even describe how it looks. It's so fucking beautiful. The stop motion, it's painstaking. It's beautifully shot. All the, I loved all the choices made uh, visually. Story-wise, it's obviously not going to be as strong as that, which is kind of the trend with Wes Anderson. He, I mean, visually, if you're a 10 out of 10 in one respect, like an 8 out of 10 in a different respect is going to be disappointing. But I think that the story wasn't disappointing for me. I think it. I think it held up. I actually, I according to like online and you, uh, I'm in the minority where I was fine with no subtitles because Wes Anderson's whole mo is directing your eyes somewhere onto the screen and putting subtitles there would completely remove where your eyes are. You wouldn't be looking at what he made anymore. Uh, I I get like the critique of that, which is that you don't understand what they're saying but i there was never a scene where i was wondering what these people were saying in japanese the gist is always understood for me like i always i always knew what they were saying without actually knowing the words they were saying it kind of that aspect kind of reminded me of the show animals on hbo where you cut back to the human characters and they're speaking in gibberish but you it doesn't you don't feel like you're being taken out of the exactly of the show so you got it i would have I would have kind of wanted something more in that regard. Like, I'm not saying to make them speak gibberish, but don't put the human characters as much in the in the foreground of the story. Kind of make them hand True. back. I, Let the animals. Uh, yeah. Be okay. So I I feel like I I'm more I'm more in line with you, Drew. Where I I actually I really did love. I think that if this isn't my favorite movie of the year, I think that this is the best movie of the year so far. Um, just like objectively the best movie as far as it looks and. The story, I found it like genuinely really beautiful. Um, when it comes to its course, this is just a story about a boy and his dog. And I thought that, that was kind of uh, lovely. It's not just. No, it's not. I think that that's kind of where At the, the core through line. Is. Yeah, that's where the through line of this if whole thing is. If you say, is. what's the main can, point of the you movie, can put, that's what like, it is. political shrouds on it, and there are those elements, but. I kind of just found that whole story to be just really beautiful. Yeah. If um, it would have been that, I, it would have been a way better movie. If it had just been about that, I see. I like. I like the other stuff though. I I liked this authoritarian character that we have. I actually, I do. I I agree with you, Drew. Like I, I've seen all this criticism about the human characters, but 
the whole thing where they speak in Japanese doesn't bother me because also for the most part we have the translator right there or somebody like we understand what's happening in these scenes I was never like thrown out or taken out of the movie yeah but it doesn't you're not connecting with the characters you're just being I mean explained I, what they're saying by someone else I, but then again I was whenever we get to like the Greta Gerwig character who played like the American exchange student I understand like what her motives of like this youth rebellious character was just because we have this established authoritarian I honestly guy. I wish that Greta Gerwig's character wasn't even in this movie I, mm. I, if, if from that an, character would have just been completely taken out of the movie and the screen time and her screen time, cause she, in the back half of the movie, she gets so much dialogue that if we, if that just wasn't there and we could have focused more on the Atari character, the, the boy and his pack of dogs, that would have been so much better in my opinion, because the first half of the movie, you're focusing on them and it's great and then in the second half you you should in my opinion you should have like still that same amount of time with them but you don't because you're you keep cutting back to Greta Gerwig's character and it's like I guess I that, don't even care about that part this just didn't I did see like I did kind of care about them because that whole the the human like the whole human plot line that we have directly relates to what's going to happen with these dogs on the islands. Therefore, I did care about what was happening in this world. Not to mention, we get some of my favorite sequences of the whole movie um, without getting, before we get into spoilers or anything, but the sushi scene, like that was just like, that's amazing. Unbelievable looking like that was just Wes Anderson at peak Wes Anderson. Yeah. Like just kind of, we get those moments like that where, it's. I feel like there was dramatically less dialogue with the humans. It was more so. That's why it seemed like it. Those scenes kind of flew by for me because it wasn't so much about. I didn't really get like major exposition vibes from that. I thought that it was more so just kind of Wes Anderson in this Japanese play box that he's trying to do and just kind of showing off little bits of the culture. Uh yeah. I don't. I like. I definitely obviously preferred the scenes that were on this. Th- yeah, yeah, maybe, yeah, maybe we should, you know, give the premise of the movie. But <laughs> the premise of the movie is that um, it's I, it's set in the near future, even though it has a very traditional view of Japan. Um, and the mayor of this city, Megasaki, which is a fictional city, banishes all dogs because they have a couple like the the dog flu and snout fever. He banishes them all to this uh, trash island where you know trash is dumped in Japan. Uh, and basically the plot of the movie is that this little boy who is uh, an adopted son of the mayor g- flies to this island to find his childhood dog because he has such a connection with him. Um, so anyway, I mean, I'll agree that the stuff on the island is definitely better, but from a narrative standpoint, the stuff on the mainland had to be there for the most part. Like it, there could have been a little bit less and I would have been okay, but it had to be there or else all the dogs on the island are just still on the island. Like for the, for the entire plot to resolve itself, there had to be something happening on the mainland to change things or else it just like, it would have been very tricky to pull off an entire thing going on the island. And then they just like, they all bust in the mainland and fix everything at the end without any backstory of what's happening on the mainland of Japan. Um, but overall, I mean, I don't, 
it's it's really weird because I don't watch movies for how they look. Like I just that's not me. Mm. A lot of I like I know plenty of people who do that, or they're like, man, it's a bad movie, but it looks so cool. And I yeah. hate movies like that. I hate Pacific Rim with all of my heart. I really do. This movie, I think the story was good enough that I didn't care that there were some weaknesses with it. Um, I think. D- Wes Anderson has like a formula to his stories. This pretty much follows that formula with some things shifted around and and added or subtracted, but you essentially have a uh an escape and a chase and a quirky romance and just this idea of like an adventure. And I mean, I know we've seen adventures in countless movies, but in every Wes Anderson movie it's kind of the, that same formula. And then you throw in the familial drama, you know, the, the parent-guardian issues. And you have your Wes Anderson movie right there. And um, the, the, the story itself doesn't... That's not my gripe with the movie. Like, I enjoy the story. I, I, I could follow it fairly well. It, it wasn't convoluted. It was clear. Just the fact that the the humans were just not characters like they and we spent so much time with these non-character humans that i just i was so checked out during those scenes even though they were beautiful every frame of this movie is a work of art that has been meticulously animated to perfection cuz that's what wes anderson is all about he's about having complete detailed control of every single aspect of everything you see but there was just there was no the only human character that i connected with was atari which is great because you know i didn't understand what he was saying but like the fact that he's he he's on a mission a mission that you understand and that you care about and that he there there is that emotional connection to him with tracy with greta gorick's character is like what the hell is she doing? What What is her motivation other than being like a white savior archetype? She has a dog. Yeah, she also has a dog there. And she misses I, it. I don't know. I mean, I do have gripes with this movie, which we'll get into because they're very spoiler specific. But um, I do think that while I do agree with you that this is kind of very, as far as Wes Anderson movies goes, Wes Anderson's movies go, it's very kind of formulaic. However, I find this movie... It's much darker than anything else that he's ever done. Um, oh yeah, which is really impressive that it is such a dark world as in, as far as uh, tone goes, and as far as the color palette. Uh, it's like lots of very just like we're coming off of Grand Budapest Hotel, which is just so vibrant on the yeah. screen, pinks that, and blues. Yeah, that this is just it's much more toned down the color palette. But I just found it so impressive that there's just this ringing of hope throughout this dark dreary world that we're in and Mm. to that point that's one of the reasons why i really love this movie is just that i i just think that all of that really worked for me that i found myself getting emotionally invested in these characters even if it was mostly in the dog's characters even in tracy's relationship i mean we have the whole scene that's shown in the trailer where she's just like darn it i think i have a crush on you and it's like okay like maybe not but like i still like i cared about honestly that that whole through line that romance is creepy as fuck this is what 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 is she like 16 17 Mm. yeah he's like he's 12 12. yeah 
Whatever. I mean, <laughs> okay, Hunter, let's not say that. It, it's high school and middle school. It's I mean, not like that's the most preposterous thing ever. She, it's not like she's like 35 crushing on this 12-year-old yeah. boy, okay? If we're going to compare the actual actors of Atari to Greta Gerwig, then it gets much creepier. <laughs> but let's just compare these characters. Yeah. I'm yeah, I I just I I like this movie more than I wanted to even like I wanted to be on your side where I was like because I've seen Wes Anderson movies where I've been like yeah like it looks so cool but it's stupid but I don't think it's stupid yeah, also but I, the main meat of this story is great and they're obviously like you know the, ob- the all the voice players are back all the a- Wes Anderson actors are back um and they do they do great this cast is probably one of the best like accumulation of talents that I've ever seen for a cast before. Like it's oh, yeah. unbelievable. Yeah. I just like, and I agree that the stuff on the mainland is way less developed than the stuff on the Island, but that didn't take away enough for me to like really critique this movie in any meaningful way. I just, I like this movie a lot more than I thought it would. I think I would put it in the upper half of all Wes Anderson movies, which I wasn't expecting. Yeah. There's no hype about this movie at all. Like, I really wasn't expecting to watch it and be like, all right. Honestly, I think that I would also put it up there in terms of Wes Anderson rankings True. only because it is kind of like a different spin on his usual thing. Mm. And he is just with the whole stop motion animation, like nobody is doing nobody is doing it like how he's mm. doing it. He is it's a master of the craft. I, like I said, I am not this guy, but... I feel like when Wes Anderson was in elementary school, he was like the diorama kid. Yeah. Like he was so fucking good at him, you know, because yeah. like it is unfucking real how cool this movie mm-hmm. looks. I've never seen anything like it before. Uh, I just want that sushi scene playing on a loop. Ex- I, yeah, right. I just yeah, like it so good. I, I just don't. This this movie is r slash oddly satisfying. <laughs> like just watching yeah. the how, sumo wrestlers. It's beautiful. The way that fights are portrayed in a ball in like a, just a cloud of, of, like, of like cotton. Oof, it, that was great. It's, it's so really it's great. just so cool. It's beautiful. Like that's why I just like I really really do. I, I even if. I don't, I'm not, I haven't really decided if this is my favorite movie of the year so far. I have to say, like, this is the best movie I've seen of 2018. Yeah. I Just, mean, I, I would definitely recommend the movie. I'm not saying yeah. it's a bad movie. I, I definitely say go go see it. Definitely, it's not for kids. Just because it's the dogs don't think that it's a children's movie because they're I, not going to be into, into Okay, it. okay. Well, I, I, I mean, maybe don't bring, like, a six-year-old to it, but yeah. I feel like if I was, like, as a 14, 15, young like, as teenager. a young teenager, yeah. I would yeah. really, really yeah. enjoy there, this movie. There were some little kids in my theater, and I would not, like, I... It cri- gets dark. I criticize those parents yeah. <laughs> yeah, more than I criticize the movie because, it yeah, it gets dark not e- only thematically, but visually. There are just some kind of grotesque scenes. Ooh, yeah, especially at the beginning. Yeah, and, and that's... I loved it for that because you don't usually see animation that's also adult and mm. it's not like Sausage Party where it's fucking stupid. Right. You know what I mean? <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but yeah, it's not for little kids. That's for sure. Um, Do we want to get into the whole like cultural appropriation debate yeah. or should we save that for well, let's, after our spoiler let, discussion? I mean, we might as well get into spoilers now. Okay. Well, let's go ahead I, and give our ratings. I'll give it a solid seven. I really enjoyed this movie. Um, I think it's beautiful beautiful uh animation the the visuals are amazing but just the fact that for so much of the runtime i was just not connecting with like half of the of the story like a chunk of the subplot i was just not emotionally invested i gotta give it a big knock 
right. Even though all the dog stuff was like pitch perfect. I would give it a little bit above an eight because A, I mean, the the mainland storyline, aside from Greta Gerwig's character and like the that entire crew of people who were meant to relate to are villains. And if I'm going to give a big knock for underdeveloped villains, I'm going to knock every movie ever made in the history of True. movies. Yeah. Every like 99% of villains suck in every movie. Um, so this has the same problem as like every Marvel movie, for example, which is a valid problem. But overall, I I was stunned watching this movie just from a visual standpoint, which is hard to do for me personally. And this, the emotional core of the story still really held up for me and it carried weight where I genuinely, like, I felt stuff and I wasn't expecting that because mm. there's some Wes Anderson movies that I really don't, even even the, like, human characters that are developed, I don't care about them because they their purpose is more to be quirky than anything in Wes Anderson movies. Like, Life Aquatic, I love that movie and it strikes me visually, like, so, so, so much, but the characters themselves, I don't particularly care about. Yeah. And this movie, at least it had characters that did matter. It had some that didn't, but that's, it's a step above a lot of Wes Anderson movies in that respect. Cause some of his movies just have characters that are all devices. Um, so I would, yeah, I would give it a little above an, above an eight and it's, it's in the conversation for best movie I've seen this year. It might not be definitely, but I, I really enjoyed it more than I thought it would. My, it's between that and ready player one. Right? <laughs> no, fuck off. My, my seven is, is pretty strong. I, it's, it's a strong seven to light eight. Yeah, I, I honestly, Jer, I'm with you here. I think I'm, I'd give it somewhere between like an eight point two to an eight point five, like somewhere in that range. Um, I another thing we didn't talk about yet was the score of this movie. Uh, Alexandra oh, Duplat. Yeah. Um, I thought the score was beautiful for this movie. Yeah. I actually think that this score might even be better than the Shape of Water score, which he won a fucking Oscar for. I, I do Whoa. love. I mean, he always has incredible music. He does. Like, that's nothing new. But, but I mean, it's crazy good. It's man. so so good. And a specific shout out to. Um, let me pull up the band. But uh, there's a song that's in the trailer that's in the movie called. Uh, the name of the song is "I Won't Hurt You" by uh, the West Coast pop art experimental band <laughs> pretty much a mouthful of a name very for a band. wes anderson because but if you would ask me right now if you were like hey what was like can you describe that song i'd be like yeah it's some like west coast pop art experimental song <laughs> and it's it's but great it, it sounds kind of strokesy yeah it is maybe that's why will toledo didn't like it he was yeah. like you're ripping me off bitch <laughs> um but i i really really love the score i think that this movie is awesome it's kind of funny um i didn't realize going into this because i knew jason schwartzman wasn't in the cast and i was like why well, hasn't jason schwartzman in this he's in every single wes anderson movie yeah, he, he actually it. helped write yeah. the story um along with uh wes anderson and a couple other guys um but a, Co- a coppola son yeah a coppola son and um an asian guy in there so they have one <laughs> he's the guy the guy who voiced the the uh, mayor yeah. yeah yeah the guy who voiced the mayor um hey there's one asian guy in there it's not racist officially. <laughs> I, which I do I, I, I do want to get a little bit into it yeah. before we get to spoilers, just kind of this whole thing, because I've heard this debate, and granted, I'm just a white male, so who am I to really say? But I found this to be less of insulting to the Asian culture and more of a celebration of things. Well, there are a couple things, like we have like 
Japanese people sumo wrestling and stuff like that. But like with the sushi scene, that's not just a scene that's just there to be like, oh, like, oh, raw fish. This is Japan. Yeah. It's truly like it's there for a purpose. And it it shows the meticulous care that goes into See, yeah, things like that. Th- that Yeah, that scene wasn't an issue. And, you know, like you said, I after I watched this movie, I was like, that wasn't offensive to me. But who am I to say? The close, exactly. The yeah. closest, <laughs> the best credibility I can say I have is I work at a Japanese restaurant. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and but I was like, you know, that seemed fine. Then I looked at it up and there are very valid points um i mean particularly the entire premise of of, of a white woman a white well a white dude person coming to doing <laughs> it's kind of he says it's an homage particularly to akira o, uh, kurosawa yeah um which is that's obviously very valid but it it's the context the cultural context that that's within is a context of centuries of white people taking stuff from other cultures and not giving credit and not giving anything back like we're white people in general are very open like we'll celebrate cinco de mayo but we won't let mexican people come (laughs) to our country you know what i mean um so it had rings of like is it okay that we're taking this is it not um i I actually i did think of something important um about the cultural debate but it's very spoiler specific so uh well let's get into spoilers we have we go see the movie it's really fun it's really good good. like i definitely recommend it especially if you own a dog like this movie will hit you in the feels my dog curry kind of looks like the main dog spots so like i was just i just went home afterwards and just like just hugged my dog and yeah. I was like, I would go to a trash island to save you. <laughs> All right, spoilers for all the dogs starting now. Right. So I love the part um, where the cats fight the dogs and then the dogs are like secret agents and then they have to fight the evil cats, cats and, and they go to the warehouse. Oh, yeah. Love that film. That's a real piece of art. All dogs go to heaven. <laughs> all See, dogs go to hell see trash island the idiots that don't watch the movie before the pod they don't know that our spoiler segment is just jokes (laughs) (laughs) we didn't see the movie um (laughs) so let's let's get into the actual like the real uh cultural critiques so one one thing i will say which i i noticed it in the film and then i kind of read about the purpose for it so the japanese characters they're speaking all japanese the entire movie except for at the very end whenever we have the character um wherever we have um Atari come home and he's giving this speech in front of everybody basically talking about like what are we doing like we're just shunning these these creatures who are like man best friend we're basically like banishing them and he says one line in English he says who are we and I feel like that was like the only line that was said in English for a specific purpose he knows Wes Anderson knows that this is a movie that's going to be seen by white audiences white English speaking audiences well, he also it's meant says, to make us kind of reflect on what are like what the true message of this movie is yeah um I will agree with the fact that Wes Anderson is actually trying to say something a little bigger here. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think he's actually done that with his other movies to try mm-hmm. to make like a point about society and like cultures coming together. Because the truth of it is that in the 21st century, it's impossible for cultures not to come together in this way. For you to be able to cross over um, and have this dialogue across the ocean and across completely different types of societies and and make a film that exists in another part of the world in such a way like this one you know this is where i think if we start seeing more movies like this um where a director like wes anderson who has 
a specific style can take that style and you know remix it in 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 a way that pays homage to this other culture like that can that can start to happen but it, it, it can get murky when the intentions start to get lost. I don't think Wes Anderson had bad intentions with this movie. Def- but there are other filmmakers who could do this similar sort of thing and not be respectful of well, the culture. Yeah, the critiques that are being uh, laid out for the most part are not they're not calling him like intentionally racist. They're it's more of a tone deafness thing. Yeah. Which I think is very valid. Um, the Los Angeles Times reporter Justin Chang, he particularly his review uh, really called out Wes Anderson for some pretty valid reasons, in my opinion. He he said it's in the director's handling of the story's human factor that his sensitivity falters. This kind of speaks to your point in a way, and it also incorporates like a kind of ignorant thing where all the villains you don't even know what they're saying. And all the villains happen to be speaking Japanese, which is yeah. So all the villains are foreign to us and literally foreign to us in a way. Um, and he said, and the weakness for racial stereotyping that is sometimes marred his work comes to the fore. Chang writes, much of the Japanese dialogue, especially Atari's, has been pared down to simple statements that non-speakers can figure out based on context and facial expressions. That's something that I obviously none of us speak Japanese, so we couldn't figure it out. But apparently, the Japanese used in this movie is like a joke kind of like it's not actual how anyone would talk in japan it's mm. just like it's like one step away from being like honda toyota like you know what i mean yeah i mean his name is atari yeah like, exactly and the city is megasaki yeah um so yeah that kind of plays into yeah, that I, I think the the whole movie is it's like wes anderson is just trying to take all of these very broad kind of cliched parts of japanese culture and you could say celebrate them i i don't think he's he's definitely not making fun of them yeah and that's that's the thing i mean again white males talking here but like i do think that like i didn't find any of it to be like it was him like poking fun at the culture or anything like that like i said like there's just so many things that if anything, the only things that were, I would say are a little bit more appropriation happen in the beginning where we get the shots of them and it's like sumo wrestlers and stuff like that where it's like, okay, like, yeah, whatever. Yeah. But the, like the shots of them making sushi, I keep going back to that thing because that was my favorite scene. That yeah, was but that's in just one moment. And then there's all of these other moments of um, the 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 movie kind of circling around um, – it never never diving deep into the culture always sort of orbiting these kind of cliches of yeah. of, of japanese culture because well, only because japanese culture as an aesthetic is really appealing like it it, it makes it kind of makes sense for the Wes Anderson style to mesh so well with mm. the japanese aesthetic yeah and it's it's a good pairing and making fun of a culture it does not mean appropriating appropriating is not simply that like it's it's just not thinking about how you're portraying a culture when you copy their style and you you show an entire movie that is in a different place it's essentially like if someone made a an american movie and kind of all they talked about was like hamburgers and stuff like that and we'd be like well you're right but you know there's more to it could you do a little more research yeah you know 
Like yeah, I would have, I, I would have wished for the story to kind of go a little deeper into like Japanese I mythology. I don't know or, if I really wanted that to be perfectly honest, because I feel like it's kind of a tricky line that you go down, where you either go too into the culture, and then it kind of it takes away screen time that could be devoted to just what this store, the core of the story is, which is just about some dogs there on the island. That it doesn't really matter where they're fucking from, because they're just like dogs. Then why um, did it have to be but, set in Japan? I mean, that's kind of a tricky question, but because I think that the other side of it is that Wes Anderson could have tried to like basically ignore the culture or just like appropriate it into like cultural appropriation is the first Blade Runner movie. That's cultural appropriation of what? Of just the Chinese culture invasion into L.A. And it's just like, oh, yeah, it's just like Chinese markets just standing there with their sushi and like Asian people like that's I feel like more culturally appropriative than this movie is oh like taking a culture and and like then like putting it, it with like an american tone over it like right. that's that's kind of i consider that to be more of a true appropriation but that's kind of what this movie is doing because you for for all intents and purposes like the characters that we connect with and that we follow they're american like they are japanese dogs but we don't see them as that yeah that. and we they see are them as american they are men. 100% played by I mean, ninety percent old white guys, and yeah. then a hundred percent white people. Yeah. Um, and that is, you know, that's something to discuss. And there, there are good points made in this article by Justin Chang. And if I lived in Japan, I might see this movie and be like, "Fuck you!" I genuinely could see, like, from a different perspective, seeing this movie might be like, "Okay, you don't know shit, bro. You don't know shit about where I live." Um, obviously, watching it. I I mean I know a certain amount of Jap- about Japanese culture but I don't know enough to be like okay well that's just kind of like sweeping everything over. Um so I wasn't I, it's easy to watch something when you're not personally insulted. Um but I could see being insulted by the movie. Like I could see that perspective. Yeah, and that's it's where, just not my perspective. That's where that line is, you know, where do you where do you draw the line between an homage and like just blatant racism. Yeah, that's the that's the thing. It's tricky. I mean Tarantino's been on that line for a minute, you know what I mean? Uh <laughs> And this movie is not, if you want to compliment it, it's not overtly offensive. It's not trying to offend. It just happens to also be offending a certain amount of people. Okay, do you guys want to like get into the non-cultural impact things about the spoilers for the movie? Um, I mean, yeah. Because I do kind of, to one thing that I did like, which it kind of sounds like you're less fanatic about, um, whenever it comes to kind of this Wes Anderson trying to make a big statement, like I... I liked the whole uh, thing where we have this authoritarian character and meanwhile we he's like going against like the science party and stuff yeah. like that. It's very like, I don't know, there's something to it that kind of rings true. Like it's made in Japan, like it's set in Japan, but it rings very American with like this authoritarian kind of yeah, person def- controlling I- what the news is and what you hear. Yeah, there are definitely a lot of American political themes going on in the movie. American and even like some World War II themes. Yeah, like I, mean, I was getting kind of like oh, some, yeah. some major like Holocaust kind of vibes yeah, there, with these there's dogs. There's a mushroom cloud in there. Yeah. <laughs> that, well, that was a, there, a couple more things that I thought were a little bit like, are you really going to put that in? Is A, how they, they, they said that the final solution was putting all these dogs in camps. It's like, we did that to Japanese people. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah I think, and I think that that was intentional like i, I know feel like but that it's was just, a Wes yeah but it's just like fuck man you're really gonna bring that up right now um but yeah the, uh the movie had i like those themes i enjoyed that um 
the villain was like you said it was he was definitely a straw man until the very end until the very end that was one of my biggest criticisms was suddenly like it turns out like he's just like oh you know what you're right i've been wrong i really hated that and then like we have the evil henchman guy who looks like a character from major beetlejuice like yeah 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 yeah. (laughs) that but the entire plot like i i really just genuinely like bottom of my heart i love the entire plot line of the little boy and brian cranston's dog oh yeah it was beautiful it was it was was sweet it was it was semi-realistic even though the whole movie is absurd obviously but it was a realistic depiction of like a dog who's not used to people vocalizing himself getting used to people because that's something that happens on a daily basis we have him say at the beginning of the movie i i I bite and you kind of take that as a threat at Mm -hmm. the beginning of the movie but then it turns into more of a thing where it's not it's less of a threat and it's more so him just saying who he is he's just like i don't know why i do this but i like i bite like i don't know why i am the way that i am and it's gets very existential and tragic in a weird way that like you don't expect it you'd expect that to just be like a joke like he's like ah i'm a stray dog and but, of course yeah. brian cranston is an amazing actor even yes. just with his voice you know which another thing that uh, another sorry i mean i cut you off but another thing that i did like about the way that the movie is put together is that it's kind of set up in the beginning that ed norton is going to be the main dog that you're following yeah yeah he's like the alpha yeah yeah yeah, yeah. that's very true and Ed Norton tends to be Wes Anderson's dude. Yeah. Like Anderson loves that fucking yeah. guy. And you also have Bill Murray and um, Jeff Goldblum in there. Oh yeah, Goldblum is Goldblum is so great in yeah. this movie. That is true. It's kind of unexpected that those dogs end up being the side characters and kind of the comedic relief to this bigger story of Brian Cranston's dog becoming accustomed to realizing that hey, humans aren't so bad. And then at the end, there you get Leif Schreiber as mm-hmm. the 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 spots the spots who. I, I really like the, the twist of that him being bros. the new... Yeah, well, that, the, the brothers thing, but him kind of being the new leader of these presumed, like, cannibalistic dogs who aren't actually yeah. cannibalistic. Yo, I can't believe that scene actually got me, like, hit me at an emotional point when they're just, like, talking about they get there and they're just like, oh, are you just going to eat me? Then do it. Yeah, and he's just like... like you know, we had to do that. To, that was our leader. Got to like, do what you got to do. He was sick yeah, and that he was, wanted us to eat him to survive. Was, Otherwise, we would yeah. have died. I was like, holy fuck. Yeah. I was expecting this to be like funny or something. That like, was Jesus. that was actually pretty gut wrenching. <laughs> yeah. And then the heat when he's talking, he's like, and we, you know, we had to eat him. Ooh, 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 and then all the dogs. <laughs> yeah, that was like, that was both funny and sad. Yeah. Yeah. Like this. It, this movie really it has an emotional impact that it kind of shouldn't. Even the, the moment when you think Spots is actually dead, when you see the bones in the cage, like that's that's some heavy shit. Yeah, it, mm. it is. It is. Yeah. Um I also I loved uh <laughs> I loved um Chief and um uh Nutmeg's relationship in this movie. Yeah. Um Scarlett whole, Johansson. Yeah, it was Scarlett Johansson's mm. character in Brian oh, Cranston. Man. Oh man, I always Scarlett Johansson is best when she's just a voice, as I always say. She has the best voice in cinema. For <laughs> I'm a big her fan, so like that's yeah, exactly. You know. yeah. Um, <laughs> and you have you have Brian Cranston, but like I just I love like the whole thing where she's just like an extra dog, and he's like, he show me some tricks, and he's just like, maybe whenever I get to know you better, and then she would like describe a trick that she's doing. He's like, just imagine I've just I'm juggling nine bowling pins that are on <laughs> fire right now, and it just like shows a little bubble by his head, and he's like. Yeah, yeah, I can picture that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the movie had a lot of fun directorial choices like that. Another interesting directorial choice that I liked was um, whenever it was a scene, like a, a televised scene that they were showing, which happened a lot because of the use of the Japanese translator played by Francis McDormand, who I, I thought she did a great job. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but whenever they did that the the televised scenes were animated yeah. they they weren't yeah. they were not stop motion they were like almost like bordering on anime but not quite but like that that style of animation yeah that definitely. was a, that was a nice was really choice cool. and it, I, lo- I do love also cool. the, the oracle dog that's just it the dog is known as the oracle because you know, like tilda his, swinton it learned yeah <laughs> she just learned to like read to watch tv yeah. with her owner <laughs> yeah, yeah you yeah, know yeah. i i think i kind of prefer the look of the hand-drawn animation for the humans <laughs> because the the stop-motion humans look just very off-putting. But I think that that was intentional, really kind strange. of, especially with uh, the major character. Like you, like look at him, and you know that he's just like an evil character. And then you see uh, the major domo character. Like all these characters, like they just they look like. It, yeah. They look off-putting, but it seems almost intentional. Like, you just want to... You're like, I don't trust the humans in this. I just yeah. want to trust my dog. I love the world building in the uh, on the island. How they kind of... Yeah, yeah they, that You was see the different really areas. Cool. The, amuse- the abandoned amusement park. It has, and di- yeah, different realms. The yeah, factory, yeah, yeah. the incinerary yeah. area. Really, really Fortnite-esque. I, I wanted... I <laughs> yeah? just wanted you're more... You're stretching it there. <laughs> I wanted more of that. Like, I wanted them to kind of flesh out that island more and, and kind of delve deep because this is what three years of dogs living on this on this island and and kind of making a a, a home of this hellscape well, almost. yeah well i do agree with you that i could have used a little bit more one thing that i did find really refreshing about this movie is it's like an hour and 40 minutes and it doesn't feel it feels very tight which you don't often say about a lot of wes anderson movies like i'm a big fan of grand budapest hotel but that movie is about 20 minutes too long and like that kind of is how i feel with a few of his movies where it's like eventually the visual quirky just shrubbery of it all just kind of you like all right i'm kind of over it can we like start to wrap this up now and i thought this movie is really well paced throughout yeah i i agree for the most part about the first half of the movie i think the first half is very tight but again when they introduced the greta gerwig tracy character i just it, it that was a big misstep for me in terms of my uh kind of jiving with the with the plot like everything that she was doing i was just like why why are we doing this like the only i felt i really felt like the only reason why she was even there was to have an english-speaking character on the mainland have a white savior character yeah Yeah. like there was no i didn't see Mm. a purpose to her being there like i would have have rather have seen uh, someone who was part of the culture being the one to rally the troops. Hey, we had the to... Asian hacker character, which that's a little bit uh, that's yeah. that's a little bit iffy that, that whole character. But well, he did have a cool little arc. <laughs> that it just it lays into the the big choice that the movie made, which is to not use subtitles. If you wanted to, like, you're saying you didn't want her to be there that much, but if if Wes Anderson wanted to have a character who was, like, the main face of the opposition and who vocally was against it, he kind of had to have someone that was speaking English. Yeah, otherwise he would have had to do subtitles. Well, yeah, because initially he had made the choice to not do subtitles. So, it, I don't think that was, like, super racist, but I also... I mean, I agree that there could have been less of her. I, I don't... Mean, I, I it think, wasn't her fault. Think but. again about the the point i made earlier about the show animals on hbo like imagine if wes anderson could have found a way to have that same type of character who is investigating the corruption 
and is going after the mayor and who is rallying the the protesters and and the and the the, the opposition have that character speak Japanese and just have show it work it through visual ha, exactly yeah. have it work without us understanding what they're saying just from a purely visual standpoint. Yeah, I, I do understand that. I do like, um, I really enjoyed the scenes with um, the uh, professor, the leader of the science party that we get that are mostly in the first half of the movie where you can tell they like build the dog cure and everything. And yeah. you can see him, he goes the scene where he goes to the admiral and shows him this and then he throws it away. And like, it, and then there's it, the sushi and that's, assassination. That's the whole like, that is visual storytelling at its finest where none of the characters in there speaking English, but yeah. you know exactly what is happening. Or even with Atari communicating with the with the dogs and like explaining his his mission and, and his goals for being on the island. Like all of that is done through context clues and purely visual storytelling. And it becomes so much more streamlined because you're not dealing with like long bouts of dialogue. It it becomes innately more condensed. And you could have you could have taken everything that happens on the mainland and considerably just compressed it into a much more like just lean version of that subplot given more time to the dogs and to trash island develop that more given us more Goldblum, more bill murray more tilda swinton because all of these we have this amazing cast of characters that just get like two or three lines in and then you just d never see them again like brian cranston and um ed norton definitely have the most to work with but everyone else they just they get a little bit here and a little bit there to they get the little moment to shine but if if you would have if you hadn't spent as much time with uh greta gerwig and like everything happening in megasaki we would have had more to to enjoy from yeah. all the dogs i mean like i said i agree with you but what we're talking about is like maybe 10 minutes max that I could see getting cut out of that plot line without ruining the mechanics of the movie. Yeah, I don't even know if you could cut a full 10 minutes out. Like, I feel I just that I, I understand your criticism, but I guess it just it didn't really bother me as much as it did you. I still like I understand where you're coming from from that. But like, as far as advancing the story goes i kind of feel like it was necessary yeah. i mean i really appreciate the film for trying these kind of more um risky efforts to 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 hit these kind of societal themes a little more than it just being a story about a, a boy trying to find his dog but i just think it hurts the movie to to go for that and not really nail it as well as it could especially because Again, you don't really connect with the characters that you're interacting with in that side of the story. So, yeah. Um, I guess we can kind of give our final thoughts if you guys have anything else. Quickly, to add. Uh, just curious, what are you guys' favorite uh, favorite Wes Anderson movie? Um, I mean, I love Grand Budapest and I love Life Aquatic as well. I'm gonna I'm gonna throw a curveball. Bottle Rocket. Oh, that wow. movie's fucking okay. hilarious. That, Rushmore's I'd probably great say too. Rushmore. Yeah, yeah, I think Rushmore, yeah. Royal Tenenbaums are definitely. Ooh, up there. Yeah, I Royal love Royal Tenenbaums, Tenenbaums so is much. Great. Yeah, um, that probably be my third favorite actually. Yeah, this yeah. is this might be my favorite since the early stuff, with the exception of Budapest. I really like Budapest, but um, I do think that I think that Isle of Dogs is kind of it's going to end up being one of my favorite Wes Anderson movies just because. I've only seen it once, but it seems like it's going to be incredibly rewatchable. Yeah, I mean, I'd still put this as one of my favorite movies of the year. I think it's worthy of of being up there with, you know, 
a quiet place and annihilation in black panther like it it's not a bad movie i just think it could have been amazing it could have been like a masterpiece for me Mm. Um, yeah i I mean i agree i just wasn't going into it expecting that i guess i was going in thinking all right it'll be a seven and i was like oh i like it i feel like it it was kind of right in line with my expectations i had pretty high expectations for it um i wasn't expecting it to be a 10 out of 10 but it was kind of it i was i still had high expectations for it i was still left satisfied just because while there are some grand uh big societal messages there in this movie i just i love how simple of a story it is at its core and that's i think that's what i really appreciate the most about it is where this movie hits it fucking knocks it out of the park like as far as the animation goes as far as the story of just following these dogs along goes like i just think that all that stuff is so expertly crafted that I just really like I just bought into this universe immediately and that's why I there are multiple moments in this movie where like it was it was fucking hitting me in the feels just like and I feel like sometimes that's kind of those are the best stories are the simplest stories. Um I will say the best line in the movie uh goes to Jeff Goldblum. Yeah, uh <laughs> dogs talk I listen. <laughs> I uh, love gossip. I uh, love gossip. <laughs> you know uh dogs talk and I listen. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's wrap it up, guys. Um, we are on Twitter at We Bought a Mike and Instagram and Facebook. All those links are down below. I am at Caldernist on social media. Check out my letterbox. Posted my Isle of Dogs thoughts on there. And what do we got coming up? Um, Tomorrow will be or next week will be pretty chill week before Avengers hits. I know uh, we have a we we got to get around to watching blockers. Blockers. Now. So we'll probably talk about yeah, blockers. Yeah, we got to ta- watch blockers. Maybe um, Rampage. Oh. Rampage. I I'm not gonna lie. I kind of want to see Truth or Dare. Oh, like, boy. there's no way that that movie can be worse than how I'm expecting it to be. So therefore, I'll be pleasantly surprised. I'm not gonna um, watch Rampage. What about Truth or Dare? <laughs> you can't make me. And no, no, you can't <laughs> me. no. I'm not gonna watch either though. Sorry. Um. Yeah. I'm on a. I'm. Twi- I'm on Twitter and um, Letterbox at Hunt Mobley. Um. Check out my stuff. I don't think I did an Isle of Dogs review yet, but I'm definitely gonna be updating my top ten list soon to fit Isle of Dogs. I'm in keeping there. my private. Oh, you're keeping yours private. Yeah, I'm keeping mine open because I'm going to be doing some tinkering and stuff with it, but you can just kind of follow want, along with me. I don't me. want people to see my tinkering. Whenever you guys see that Black Panther is still my number one, you can deliver a bunch of hate mail to me about how I'm a fucking trash person. Whenever <laughs> I say that Annihilation was the worst movie I've seen this year, like, mm, whatever. Right. Um, what about yeah. you, Drew? <sighs> <laughs> no. I'm, it's late. I'm at uh, Drew D on Letterboxd. I'm at Drew Dietzen on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Oh, you hear my belly just then? Oh, man. Yeah, I got a fart, man. Grub. I've been holding in a fart for two hours. An Andre the Giant fart? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, uh, Spotify, Drew Dietzen. Yeah. All right. Well, that about does it for this week. Thanks for listening. And let us know all your thoughts on all the stuff we talked about. We'll catch you next week. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.